Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, a night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's, and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want in a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today we're going to be talking with Joseph Miller, uh, somebody who is I've known online for years and years and years. I was telling the producer of the podcast, Eric, just before we started that I'm like, I know everything about this guy's life. He knows everything about my life. <laughs> like we've been friends online for years. I actually wrote a poem about <laughs> like dedicated, inspired by this guy. Uh, but this is the first time I've ever actually, you know, heard your voice live. It's uh, it's quite quite amazing. But that that's you know I sometimes I I think that's really weird. But then as I was saying to Eric uh, before we just went on. Maybe it's not so weird because, you know, during the Enlightenment, Voltaire and Rousseau and all those people, they maintained an extensive correspondence with all sorts of people. And they very often knew people for years and years before they actually met them, you know, heard their voice or yeah, anything yeah. like that. So maybe it's well, not it, so I, weird. No, it isn't. Um, it did lead to some unfortunate things, though, like when um, Rousseau met Hume and <laughs> realized... <laughs> They realized they were not friends. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Rousseau is such a douchebag. I mean, like, like <laughs> people would meet him and just be like, "Wow, how did I ever, how did I ever see anything in you? <laughs> like, you're such a jerk." Well, I mean, he was he, he was very good at writing, so you know. Yes, he as, was. As long as you never connected his words to the person he actually was, he seemed great. And then you yeah. met him and realized, oh no. <laughs> He's. I'm. I'm almost. I'm almost tempted to think that Rousseau was like just i mean definitely a narcissist but i'm i'm tempted to think that he was like almost like a sociopath like a non-violent yeah. sociopath cuz no, the I descriptions of him you know just um you know there's certain things like the fact that they would be on a boat and it was like a horrible storm and he was just sleeping totally fine like a baby like just <laughs> He has a lot of the telltale signs of somebody who was a sociopath, but anyway. 
Well, for me, the, the worst was the pin story. Or was it a pin or a ribbon? I think he was working in a ribbon factory. And I don't remember exactly what he did wrong. But um, basically, he didn't do something he was supposed to do. And as a result, their whole process stopped. And uh, the manager was very mad. So he promptly blamed the, the girl next to him for doing it. Yeah. And then explained, oh, uh, it's, uh, that was fine because I, I just did it in the, on the spur of the moment because I felt bad you know, after she was fired. <laughs> yeah, in his confessions. Yeah, his, his confessions. I mean, like, I, I understand how at the time it must have been quite, quite sort of radical, revolutionary to read the confessions. But with the benefit of hindsight... I mean, Rousseau started confessing, and Western men have just, they've never stopped. I mean, they just, they've been <laughs> confessing ever since. I mean, there's a straight line between Rousseau's confessions and Oprah. I mean, like, you know, where people just go on, and it's like, if I cry and I'm sad, then somehow it makes it okay. <laughs> it's like, it's really, uh, I mean, I love that. I love that line in um, the Tony Hoagland poem, uh, "Hard Rain," where he says, uh, "You just, you know, you just have to try and be the best person you can be, one day at a time." I heard the talk show host saying to the teenage murderer, <laughs> and the audience wept and clapped. Because we desperately want to believe that the power of forgiveness and redemption is greater than the power of history and consequence. <laughs> like, it's just such a great poem. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, that's, uh, we want to believe that, right? We want to believe. Yeah, we do. We want to believe that uh, by just confessing, you can make everything okay when actually. It would be good if you just didn't cheat on your wife and rat people out and hurt people in the first place. <laughs> well, right. <I laughs> Why mean, don't you do that? <laughs> it'd be nice if Rousseau would confess, you know, before he got the girl fired. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I had the bad thought of doing this, but I didn't do it. That would be wonderful. I mean, like... Yeah. So or, how, would or, you, how would you describe... I mean, I, I think of you as this like this very very complicated person and so i'm i'm reticent to kind of describe you really i'm oh, uh, you know but uh, how would you describe yourself to our listeners um well i started out um i guess the easiest way the easiest way for me is to tell stories about myself but that will make me sound like rousseau so no it um, won't cuz you're not confessing you're just telling yeah well i'll just We're tell just you sitting what around happened. the campfire you know telling stories yeah. <laughs> So, so I was a little kid, right? And um, I'm I'm the oldest of uh, not a huge family, but uh, a pretty large one. I think my parents have uh, six kids, and I'm the oldest, uh, which is large for both of our families. My mom was one of two children, and my dad, my dad has, I think he has more siblings. He's he's closer, mm -hmm. uh, four or five. Um, I can't count. I can't remember exactly who all my un uncles and aunts are now. They all got married, and some of them had big families. So mm -hmm. that's probably what's causing it. Um, and you, you, but, you're, you grew up in Utah? Um, I actually grew up in um, – this story comes from Alabama. Um, oh, wow. Okay. My dad was from um, 
he was born in uh, Indiana and his parents moved to Tennessee, uh, which is where he spent most of his life. My mom was from Tennessee and her family's from Tennessee and Virginia going back to like um, the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a really long time, they've been from there. My dad, not so much. Um, but so Tennessee is actually where I was born. And, um, my dad converted to Mormonism and my mom was in the process of converting maybe when she met him. And, uh, he was actually the one who made sure that she converted and married her after he baptized her. Um, so I was born, he was in the military. Uh, we moved all over the South basically. And when we, he was in, um, I'm trying to remember if it was Fort, I think it was Fort McClellan is where he was stationed. Um, he was a doctor. So, um, so I went to school, right? I went to the local public school, which was Golden Springs Elementary. And they would take us outside to play. And that was my favorite part of school was going outside to play. And I would go <laughs> to the trees and play by myself in the trees. Um, and I didn't necessarily do this. on. It wasn't like I was avoiding other people. Um, occasionally, right, a few people would come out and I would do things with them. People would come find me and we would, we would you know, do whatever games they wanted to do. Um, but I spent a lot of time by myself and I spent a lot of time just aimlessly wandering around under trees, which I like to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, well, why I remember this is because uh, at one point when I was in kindergarten, they recognized that I was strange. And um, back then they were, they were trying this thing with strange kids where they were like, well, maybe we, we'll give you a special class during recess. You can come into this room with some other kids and we'll do puzzles and games and stuff. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I just want to go outside. That's my favorite part of school is actually walking under those trees. So I don't, <laughs> I don't want to skip that so that I can go mm-hmm. and, I don't know, read, you know, um, do level one readers with you guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> which, which would be cool because we're not, we're not in first grade, but, um, but oh, well. Um, so I remember that, that, that's sort of been my whole life is I do these things that seem normal to me and then at some point I realized, oh, nobody is doing this. You're the only one. And it makes you um, sort of odd. Um, so it, it was bad enough when I was a kid. Um, my kindergarten teacher was actually fine with it, right? She really liked me. Uh, my first grade teacher hated me. Um, and by hated me, I don't mean that she was like Rousseau. I think she was a normal human being. Um, but I got on her nerves, right? Because she mm-hmm. didn't know what to do with she didn't know what to do with me, and we didn't have Ritalin. So she told my dad that I needed to see a psychologist. Like every week, she would tell him. Oh, they had Ritalin by that by that uh, time, or just not in that school, I guess. Because I remember my my buddy Alex and I, we were the first kids in the school. I mean, I'm I'm 44, and like the we were the first kids in the school that they wanted to put on Ritalin, and it was a new okay, well, it was um, a new thing. Where were you it, growing up? Uh, in Montreal. And it okay. was it was well, a new thing, and yeah. they tried. They really wanted to put us on that, and uh, both of our my mom and his mom both said like, "No way, <laughs> you're not like you're not yeah. uh, drugging up like our kids. If you can't handle, right. well, I mean, because basically what happened was um, they had uh, they had corporal punishment um, in the school. Yeah, we here. had that too. Right, and they had corporal punishment, and you know, corporal punishment. I, I totally, I, I'm glad that it was abolished. It was, I, I'm, you know, it's very easy to see why it's a bad thing, and why it can have, but in terms of like, 
um, just from a purely uh, from a purely functional standpoint, right? Yeah. Uh, corporal punishment allowed a four foot eleven woman in her late fifties to manage a class of forty students without any right. incident. It, because if, it if anybody, it, it made it possible, right? So it made it possible for her to actually teach. Yeah this like little tiny woman these to teach a class full of like crazy kids and or hormonal right. you know hormone pumped like teenagers and stuff like that so when they got rid of corporal punishment suddenly um you needed to have a whole different skill set to be able to manage or the yeah. maybe vastly reduce your class sizes, but whatever. But yeah, well, the, you had to move. You had to move to another model of schooling. You had to do something else. Better. People had to be like way more charismatic, way more like they had to be yeah, well, much and, and better able lady. to like to, you know <laughs> to manage a group like that without force. But I was. They had yeah, just yeah. gotten rid of corporal punishment when I was in elementary school, and so it was just a madhouse. It was an absolute madhouse. The teachers, the teachers, they had no control. They spent all of their day, like they spent like half their time at least, you know, yelling at kids to stop doing X, Y, Z. They they had they yeah, yeah. spent very little time actually teaching, and they were just exhausted. Like tons of people, yeah. Alabama, I'm going to say that Alabama is um, conservative uh, historically in the U.S. in the sense that it tends to hold on to stuff longer than, say, Montreal. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm pretty sure that they still do corporal punishment there. When, when I was there, they did. But it wasn't actually needed that much. Um, in large part, I think, because the culture still did corporal punishment at home. Mm -hmm. um, so usually what would happen is teachers would tell your parents, and then if you were lucky, right, um, your parents were nice about their punishment. And if you weren't, well, then they were not very nice at all. Uh, mine were nice. Mine, my parents were never, I, I remember my dad spanked me one time and said, this feels really strange. I'm not sure we should do it. Um, and never did it again. <laughs> yeah. I um, got, I got corporal punishment when I was a kid, but yeah, uh, we had a principal, our, our principal would spank you, but he, I mean, not in a bad way. I don't think she ever hurt anyone. It was more of the shame of doing it, which worked because we had a shame. The South has a very shame driven culture. Uh, uh -huh. For good as well as for ill, that was that was the thing there. Um, wow. your, your honor, honor sort of matters. Um, yeah, I mean, that, it's pretty it's pretty embarrassing to like you know get spanked on your bottom. I mean, it's like pretty. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean that's pretty that's pretty terrible. <laughs> Especially when you're a little kid and you know you're not. It's not supposed to happen. And I don't know. Yeah. So, so in the end, all she had to do was just take. She had this little uh, paddle. They they wouldn't even necessarily make you uh, take off your pants. They just. So take she would you would go to her office and she'd take down the paddle and give you you know two or three whacks with it um hard enough to let you know she did it but not no, no one you you weren't getting hurt by it yeah so it you you were around the south getting paddled for being weird and <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes um so you're in grade in one and your teacher doesn't doesn't like you because my teacher does not you're like weird me little and, rain man you know, kid and doesn't so. know what to do with me and and we're not early adopters of ritalin we're very late um, so I go to the psychologist, the psychologist interviews me and tells my dad, Oh, he's fine. He's just a little strange. Um, and I was doing other weird, like I would say things to my teacher. I was very worried about stuff in general. I had very high levels of anxiety. Um, I remember I was anxious about being fat at one time, which is kind of funny since I wasn't fat. 
Um, <laughs> but I was very worried. But I was very worried about it. You know, right. So she's like, I don't know what to do with this kid. He should go talk to the psychologist. And the psychologist happened to be fat, right? So he took me up to a mirror and he, <laughs> he's like, see us in the mirror, right? Which one of us is fat? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's so hilarious. <laughs> it was. I actually thought it was really funny. Um, what was really funny to me, though, at the time was that uh, when he when he did that, I realized I, I don't mind that he's fat. Like, that's not the problem. Um, it's not like there's some objective. It's it's. And I realized that being worried about it wasn't the same thing as, I don't know, having it or it's not like I was worried about something concrete, if that makes sense. Mm hmm. Um, I didn't know how to say any of that at the time, of course. So we just had a, you know, amiable chat and I played with toys and then he told my dad, no, he's fine. He's just a kid. Um, mm. So my dad said, this is really weird. I don't know if I have time to deal with um, all this. If teachers don't know what to do with you, maybe, maybe it'll, it'll be a good idea for you to uh, learn some stuff on your own. Um, and he said, well, you can come home and just study in the basement. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so oh we did that. Oh my God, you were homeschooled? Yes, I, uh, I I finished second grade. <laughs> I finished second grade. Um, my dad got out of the army. We left uh, Fort McClellan and moved to um, Georgia, where he went into uh, private practice and uh, bought a little house out in the suburbs in what used to be the country. It was like a cow pasture that was slowly turning into um, subdivisions. Now it's like a suburb of Atlanta. Um, but at the time, it was relatively sort of empty. And, uh, yeah, I lived there from second, from the time I was like nine till I was, uh, I want to say eight. Yeah, I was 18 or nine. No, I left when I was 19. So I was 19. Um, and I didn't go back to school till I was, um, almost 18. It was a few weeks before my 18th birthday. I matriculated at the university of Georgia. Um, and that was my first experience with school in second grade. That is wild. That is wild. So that explains just so much. We weren't like the, some homeschool families. Well, 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 because there are people who are like, "Well, I'm homeschooling," and what they mean is, I'm, you know, I don't know, just sitting around doing random stuff. Uh, um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, my basically, okay, I can't believe uh, I'm going back to Rousseau here. Abused by you know people who. So yeah, I would. I... <laughs> yeah, I I guess for me because I see. Um, oh, go ahead. I I see I see students who are. Did I lose been you? Homes yeah, we we got we got fuzzy for a bit, but you're back. <laughs> but uh, I see students who've been homeschooled, and my impression of them in general. Yeah, it said, it said I've more seen, connection. I've seen, you know, I've seen hundreds of them at this point after teaching for years, but really long time. But I would say that uh, on average, uh, actually, you know, the vast majority of them are academically they're very well prepared. Like, so they're, they're, it's not as if yeah. they've, they've gotten, uh, cause usually the standards for homeschooling in most places, I mean, I know this is the case here in Quebec. I imagine it's the same thing in Georgia. Uh, but the standards for homeschooling are higher than the standards for regular public schools. Like, so they, yeah, in you, Georgia, in Georgia, they were, yeah, they they are here. I mean, like the, uh, the exams are harder. The pass, 
that passing grades are higher. Like you really have to be like, you have to yeah, be well, you have really to on the ball, your, like in order to take make your it. spot, right? Yeah, <laughs> you have to like justify. There's no your, such thing as like, uh, oh, well, you got it. You scraped a C in uh, high school. Good job. You can go to college. Yeah, no, you you have to really, really be on the ball. So my my impression is that the students are by and large academically very well prepared. Yeah. Where they are not well prepared is socially. And yes. socially they are um very 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 kind of uh I don't know how to use it I'm not sure what term to use they're like they're like immature Let, let's say for argument's sake okay let's say for argument's sake that there are 17 different kinds of humans you know like I mean like it's completely yeah, yeah. arbitrary but let's say there's yeah, like it's, 17 it's nice, big number. 17 different kinds of humans, let's say, for argument's sake. If you have a big family, uh, then, like, maybe just within your family, you get to know, like, six different kinds of humans. Because, like, your family are all linked genetically, which means, like, there are probably a lot of people that are quite similar, actually. So yeah, well, um, live with each other. Uh, you live with each other. So let's say, like, if you have a really big family, you get to get, you get to know like six different kinds of humans, right? Now, if you have a small family, which uh, you know, an ex ex girlfriend of mine from when I was younger, like, she basically just grew up on a farm in the middle of like a rural area with just as an only child just her and her mom and her dad. So she was like, she had basically got to know like two different kinds of people. Yeah. There's men and there's women. And yeah, (laughs) well, yeah, but like her dad was one kind of person and her mom was one kind of person. So she just, when she got into like the world, she was homeschooled a lot. So when she got like out into the world, there were like, you know, to take my hypothetical example, there were like 15 kinds of humans that were brand new to her, right? She had no idea how to deal with them. It was like an alien race, you know? And like my, my sort of sense of the homeschooled kids that I, that I see is that um, academically they're very mature, but socially they're really, really, immature like they just there's all these different types of humans that they just don't know how to deal with at all like let's say they've never met a bully or they've never or a certain kind of bully right or they've never met somebody who manipulates you by crying or they've never met like they there's just all these like regular human types that they've just never encountered and so they get rolled by these people oh yeah oh yeah yeah and they're very kind of overwhelmed by it but uh but what was your experience of it um well people were very worried about that of course and would always ask my parents my parents have always been sort of not antisocial, but always retiring uh, neither one of them has been is a great fan of um i don't know hanging out and stuff um they, they tend to like, like in a social situation yeah they, they both They'd rather just be a, with their family and at home yeah or... right yep doing little projects and stuff yeah. Um, not that they avoid people. Like I get the feeling they like people, but they always want to run away at some point. Um, <laughs> so I've so you what, know what I've never known us. a doctor. I've never I one of my 
one of my good friends is a doctor and he he's actually my doctor and uh he doesn't like big social situations when he cuz that's his job <laughs> you know he sees <laughs> like dozens true, of although... people a day he doesn't want to do yeah. that afterwards i mean he just wants to no. hang out and like be quiet yeah well that was like that was my dad too basically um he liked to garden so we had a huge garden um that he would work on and we helped him work on it um, but then what they did for our socialization was, um, take us to church, right? Uh, mm-hmm. be very active, be very active Mormons, um, which is easy to do because, uh, the Mormons like to do all sorts of things. Uh, so what, what, a lot of the socialization I had that wasn't, uh, from martial arts, which was the other thing that we did, um, was at church. So I had a lot of, um, sort of, uh, <laughs> I guess you could say, I put a lot of eggs in the church basket without necessarily meaning to that I took out of school, right? Yeah. Uh, so what a lot of people got from uh, school, I ended up getting from church. Um, yeah. In terms of uh, like physical bullies, at least, uh, martial arts helped with that. Sure. Right, because I was always getting uh, beaten up there as a matter of course. <laughs> by, well, by, well but by people who were nice about it, right? Yeah. Who weren't, uh, who weren't necessarily trying to hurt me in a bad way. Um, so I learned how to deal with that, and it was fine. Uh, yeah, I, never, I, I did. What what uh, what martial art were you in? Um, I started in Taekwondo. Okay, and you've stayed with that. Um, I've migrated over the years. Um, at the end of my when I was uh, around the time that I was uh, leaving, actually, when I was about eighteen, my Taekwondo instructor was starting to learn jujitsu. Uh, <laughs> Growing up for a and change, I thought, yeah. oh, this will be fun. I should do that too. And then when I came out to Utah and met my wife, who wasn't my wife. Um, she introduced me to um, her childhood friend, who is Ricky Lundell. Um, you probably haven't heard of him, um, but if you have, right, you know that uh, he he was uh, a jujitsu champion as a kid, right? So when he was 19, he won. Um, I want to say he, the the Pan Ams, which is a really big uh, international jujitsu thing. Yeah, no, I've heard uh, he about won- him on uh, Joe Rogan. He's mentioned yeah. him. Yeah, it sure. Was, and uh, so your he your wife that. knew him. Yeah, my wife grew up with him. Um, he's he's actually from wow. he's actually from he's actually from um, this this part. I don't know if he's from Orem or Provo, but his dad still lives here. Uh, he's in Nevada. I actually see him pretty regularly. Um, That's wild. He just got married. Um, yeah, so uh, so he went after he won the Pan Ams. Uh, Kale Sanderson, who's from uh, just down the street, right? He's from uh, I think he grew up in Heber, which is in the Provo Canyon. Um, he saw what Ricky was doing and said, um, I'd like you to wrestle for me at Iowa State. And Ricky was like, well, that's good. Uh, I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> um, so he went off and learned wrestling. And um, so when I moved back here, he had started a little jujitsu school. Um, and I was like, well, I'm now, because since I know I wanted to do, I want to do that. Um, and I walked in and they were doing this, this new, uh, what, re- basically, essentially wrestling and jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I do now. Yeah, I um, I did uh, for for a long time when I was a kid. I did uh, karate, Chido Ryu, and yeah. I did that for. And I I remember when they first, because I I don't know you you probably know this, but uh, when they were creating like MMA, one of the the big sort of places where MMA started was Montreal. Right? Like, oh yeah, uh, Jean Saint Pierre and stuff like that. Like was here, yeah, yeah. And like it was a, it was a big where they first. And I actually, you know, I only realized this in retrospect, but I participated in some of the events 
that sort of led to somebody putting putting together the MMA. So they started having these things which were um, inter-style kind of competitions, where which was very, very bizarre at the time. You know, where oh, like yeah. basically you could <laughs> show up and it was like Taekwondo people, karate people, uh, you know, Aikido people, and like, you know, judo people all together. And they would have like, and they would just get some established rules and then they would fight. And I remember <laughs> it was kind of amazing because like, you know, people who were really good within like our style, right? Who would like win championships within our style they would go to these interstyle competitions and just get their asses kicked like they would just get yeah. destroyed and i remember yeah. like um we got like the people who were really really good in my in my school and in my my sort of style of karate like we just did not do well <laughs> against like yeah yeah and i but i remember one thing i remember i mean it's been a long time but one thing i remember very clearly is that the people who won every single year that i went to those competitions um were the people from aikido <laughs> like they would just i remember the first time i ever went up against an aikido guy i could not believe how much better this guy was than me. Like, I just couldn't believe, like, nothing, I everything I threw at him, it would come right back at me, like, and yeah. I would be, it was like, I just felt like, like a child. I felt, like, completely useless <laughs> against this guy. Like, and it, that yeah. was always, but I remember the Aikido people always won, and I remember the people that were always absolutely at the bottom of the heap, by far was taekwondo they yeah they just got destroyed (laughs) they even got destroyed by us and we got destroyed (laughs) by almost everybody else but like i remember like and it was just that you know joe rogan talks about this and he says like those early kind of mixed martial arts competitions they were really good because they they sort of uh they were like they they kind of showed which which traditions actually actually had some useful skills and which ones like because the taekwondo people they would come up and they were doing all these like flowery kicks and you'd just like yeah. foot sweep them and like fucking kill them it would be like yeah, so yeah. easy it's like you're you're doing like a big like you're doing ballet and I'm trying to kick your ass it's like, <laughs> <it was> like <laughs> oops. Yeah, it was like I mean, in order to land like one of those like big flowery like roundhouses, well, you, you, you had you to, to be really really fast, and the other person had yeah. to be really really slow. You have to set it up. We we did do like um, the people are the people that we had who uh, went on to like actually compete in fighting um, did kickboxing, mm-hmm. which was essentially the Dutch style kickboxing. Um, we would have done Muay Thai if it had existed, but it mm-hmm. didn't. We, didn't, we didn't really have it. Um, but so like, um, I, I used to watch, um, so, say like Bass Rutten, um, or, um, Fedor Yemelianenko. I like, I really liked watching the old pride stuff. Um, before, 
well, like the, the earlier generations before there was UFC. Yeah. Um, and even after, even, even when the UFC existed, um, I still like to go back sometimes and watch some of those old fights. Yeah. Um, oh, they're amazing. It's really, it's really, yeah. it's really funny to me to see how uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular has sort of gone the way of a lot of the people that it uh, criticized. Um, <laughs> yeah. The way that it's taught. Yeah. The way that it's taught in the U.S. Well, especially here. Like, uh, the, the quality of jiu-jitsu in Utah as a whole is kind of low, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, which isn't surprising if you go to some place like Chicago or San Francisco or New York where you have a lot more people, just like you have more stuff to do with hospitals. Um, there's more stuff to do with um, pretty much any any language um, and also uh, any kind of sport like jiu-jitsu. You get, yeah. you get better quality fighting when you get more. There are more people, so you can see more stuff. I think it's a lot of it is a size thing, though. I, yeah, yeah. I agree with you that it's it's a demographic thing, but like when you have like smaller people who are really really right. good at it, like you've got to be, you've just got to be so much more technically fantastic when you're smaller. And so, yep. like if it's you're, true. you know, like Sam Harris talked about this on his podcast. Like if uh, if you got just like like a little kind of like five foot two guy, little Asian guy who's like a hundred ten pounds, like. Yeah, uh, he's got to be amazing, uh, right? He's got to be amazing. Ricky's like, uh, I, I don't know if he's five two, um, but he's under six feet for sure. Uh, <laughs> and and his fighting weight was like a hundred and I want to say somewhere between a hundred and hundred thirty, a hundred and seventy pounds. Um, always so shorter and lighter than I am, right? Since I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, but he could beat up, he could beat me up easily um, mm-hmm. because he's much more. Te- he's a lot more technical. Yeah. Um, well, I think the, the really bigger, cool. the bigger and stronger you are, uh, no, the more to that some extent you can be, you can be like kind of lazier, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you've ever watched, uh, there's a really good video of Mark Hunt um, getting. Uh, I think he he takes um, a spinning back crescent kick to the head. So someone uh, jumped around in a circle and hit him uh, with the heel on his chin, and um, he, he he roll he his head rolls, um, and uh, and then he just keeps going. Um, I I don't get to do that. If I had got, if I had been hit by that kick, uh, I would have been knocked out and my jaw would probably be broken. Um, Have you ever had your jaw broken? No. Yeah. No. The only only thing I broke was my nose. Um, Yeah. That wasn't, that was my fault. How, what happened? You fell? Um, we were working on, um, this was in Chicago and we were doing guard passes and I was someone, someone who was big and strong was uh, doing a nice guard pass and Mm -hmm. um, did not yet know how to, that I should be wrestling him instead of doing jujitsu there. Uh, So instead of turning (laughs) away from him, instead of turning away from him, I was grabbing his knee and um, he kindly put it through my face. Um, (laughs) I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I've got like, uh, I've got one of those noses that's like, you know, ninety percent cartilage, ten percent bone. It's uh, <laughs> so it just falls. It's just yeah. It's just unbreakable. It's absolutely unbreakable. It's, an, it's just like a, a folding piece, nose. Yeah, it's like a piece of rubber on my face. Like it, it cannot be broken. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, well, like uh, guys, guys that have like an actual nose, like it's amazing. Well, I have how, a Roman nose now. Yeah, I have a Roman nose since it got broken. Um, <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Which, which my wife says is better, right? She's like, oh, now you look more distinguished. Yeah. <laughs> So we we've heard of you up until grade one. So so how did you oh, end yeah, up right, being right. like who you are? 
Um, so I went back to school and I had a very sort of, as, as uh, like many of your students, based on what you were saying, um, I had uh, sort of hyper-developed academic senses, but also very sort of um, oddly developed social tendencies. I tended to see church as being very important. Um, so I, I was the kind of person who, who took church a lot more seriously, I think, than a lot of people. Um, and in my family, right, this meant that we all tended towards um, a literal reading of the scriptures. Um, since we were Mormons, right, we knew because the church has, since the 19th century, incorporated this idea that uh, scriptures have been sort of, um, I guess, tampered with by people mm-hmm. over, over time. So you can't, you can't always trust them. Um, but you sort of start from the premise that they're basically correct and then look for specific moments where they might be wrong or where we might need to know something more. So I was always reading the scriptures very carefully, right? Uh, uh, which again, made me kind of weird at church. Um, which it turns out a lot, a lot of what we do at church is say, well, we really should read the scriptures. And by that, we mean, it'd be nice if you read a verse once or twice a month, maybe, um, <laughs> And uh, I was a little kid, so I didn't know that. So I was like, I'll just read like two hours every day since I can, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And I'm and I was thinking while I'm reading it, I'm like, well, there are all these notes in the apparatus, right? To the stuff that's in Latin or Greek or Hebrew, and I can't read it. I should go read that stuff. Oh um, my really god, wanna, notes! Were I really you, want to know what were all you these reading words Dakes? <laughs> what were you reading? Which no, one? I was reading the other. I was reading uh, the Mormon Standard Version, so the, the King James. Um, Okay, but with uh, with notes, and you know, you go to Sunday school, and you realize, oh, it's from this Greek word, and other people will be like, "Wow, that's crazy," and I'm like, "Well, what is the Greek? How do I know what the Greek word says?" Um, my dad also had a copy of Edward Gibbons' Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire in the basement. Nice, nice. When I was twelve, I found that and started reading that. It took me two years because I went through very carefully. Also, I couldn't read any of the notes in that because he would quote from like Dio Cassius and Tacitus and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in Latin or Greek, and I would look at it and say, "Well, this is gibberish. I don't know what to make of this." Um, <laughs> so I could read; I could sort of piece through the English slowly, because um, his English style is pretty messed up in many ways. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and for years, it it made me impenetrable because I would write like that. Um, <laughs> 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 Like you write like uh, an, an overstuffed man with a thesaurus in Switzerland, and I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, that's right. That's because that's how I learned how to how to read. Um, <laughs> but, so I was reading the King James Bible. I, I relate to this so much; it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, well, yeah. I know, I know, I don't know. I feel bad because you say you already know me, and I, 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 I know of you, right? Yeah, I, I did. I, I've but read I, I relate this. to this a lot. <laughs> oh, well, so, good, good. Yeah. So I was reading all this stuff, and I go to school, right? And in school, I, I'm, I'm thinking, well, I want to learn these languages so I can understand these sources. I, I think my life's work has something to do with religion. Um, and because I'm a good person, right, it's, I, it has to do with uh, this, the, the true religion that I just happen to have been born into, which is so lucky for me. I, I don't know why I was blessed that way. It, it, uh, you'd have to ask God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I go to school. And promptly run into right uh, what it is that we're doing at school, um, and the funny thing about it, right, is that uh, I'm sort of dead set on studying humanities, but I'm studying it uh, from a perspective that says oh, I want to learn all the old stuff, mostly languages. Um, so I get into languages. I, I learn pretty fast that if you do biblical studies, say at the University of Georgia, um, I would be spending a whole lot of time. Um, <laughs> 
doing things that I wasn't sure that I really wanted to do, like uh, taking classes on uh, particular books in the Bible from an academic standpoint, most of which I ended up sort of initially rebelling against, right? Mm-hmm. I think my first first paper um, for a biblical studies class was something to the effect of, um, here are all the arguments for why the Exodus never happened, and here are all the reasons why they're they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that must have made you popular. <laughs> um, well, I, I did get a good grade on it to my my teacher's credit. Um, because well, I worked very hard on it. Was the thing I, I sort of went through and read a whole lot of sources, um, and um, and sort of made honest arguments. Now they aren't arguments that I would agree with anymore today. Uh, but I was trying to make a serious case for what I thought at the time, which is, well, of course, the, the Bible can be read as history. Maybe there are some things about it that are not historical, but um, these are incidental, not uh, not as uh, as many or great as, say, Israel Finkelstein would like them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, the, the main archaeologist I found in UGA's library at the time, arguing that uh, the Exodus occurred in the 8th century BCE when some historians— um, needed a story <laughs> to just sort of create, create these new people who would go back and uh, resettle this land and have it be the promised land and worship God the right way this time. Um, which, you know, I, I'm a lot more amenable now to a lot of the arguments that he gave. Um, but at the time, you know, I was young and naive and knew everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and my teachers were, you know, gracious and put up with it. Um, but at the time, too, I, I was also uh, interested in Greek and Latin, not just because of the Bible, but also because of Edward Gibbon. And I was taking classics classes, and I said, you know what? I really like classics more than biblical studies. It's more fun to just read, say, Tacitus or Virgil or Homer um, than it is to sort of in, do endless reruns of uh, did the Exodus really happen? And if you've ever you know, slogged through Leviticus too many times, which by then I had, um, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> realize at some point, well, I could be reading Virgil and I'm reading this. Why? Um, and for me, the answer was, well, because this is somehow true and Virgil isn't. But then I realized, but Virgil's way more fun. Um, <laughs> and today, Virgil is also truer to me than Leviticus. Um, not because Leviticus is worthless. I still like to read it. But um, but if you made me pick, right? If I had to pick Leviticus or the Aeneid uh, for a desert island, I would pick the Aeneid. Sure, um, sure. And, but, and you but know, the, old... you know, you, you read Leviticus in the light of Mary <laughs> Douglas, and you're like, "This is the most amazing thing ever." Yeah, well, right, right, yeah, exactly. Like that last <laughs> book that she wrote um, when she was really old. You know, like, uh, I mean, that's just like Leviticus is literature. That's such a fantastic. Yeah. You read that? No, but I will now. Um, yeah. I, I can totally believe it because that, that's the kind of stuff. It's the kind of stuff that I that I found consistently is that a lot of this stuff. Um, cause there was a moment, right? There was sort of a, a, a moment that happened. It didn't happen. It took years coming. Um, and it was a series of events that led to it. But, um, but there was a moment in my life when I had to ask myself, well, do I really value this stuff? Um, and my answer ultimately was, yes, I still value things like the scriptures. Um, even when they don't mean to me what they did when I was, you know, 18. Yeah. Um, so I went to school, right. This was me going to college. Um, I don't know how much you know about Mormons, but if you're a good member of the church, uh, used to be when you were 19. Now it's when you're 18. You go on your mission. Yep. Yep. You go on your mission. Yep. Um, my dad went to Mexico, so we grew up speaking Spanish because that—that's again the kind of thing that he would do. Um, right. So, so you can see my family's a little bit strange that way. <laughs> <laughs> I have so a lot of friends. You're fluent right? in Spanish. Yes. I, I as a so and as a cool. teenager. 
as a teenager, right? Even I was, I was uh, already relatively fluent. We have a lot of Spanish speakers in Georgia. Um, and we actually had a fair number of them. We, we had a Spanish branch, they call it, um, in our local um, Mormon community. They're called wards. Um, so in our ward, our ward had an affiliated Spanish branch. And my dad would occasionally serve in callings there because he spoke Spanish. Um, and he would invite us and we would come and we would take part in that and you know just hang out with people and talk to them and do stuff with them. Um, so we got to practice Spanish actually pretty regularly. And once, once I was getting to be um, older, after I got my mission call, I would go like every Sunday. Because um, I got my call to northern Spain, to a mission that doesn't exist anymore, because I think our baptism rate at the time, when I was there, it was something like half a person per missionary per mission. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> Ooh, that's harsh. <laughs> yeah, if you do that's the math, that, that means nobody gets baptized. Yeah. Um, in my experience, those who do are mostly um, people who are moving in from out of the country. Um, they tend to be... Uh, South Americans Looking and for community, Africans. kind of like yeah, well, exactly people like us who are sort of outcasts who don't fit into the local community for whatever reason. Yeah, um, and they're like, "Oh, hey, you look like us. Um, we will go to your church. We will also <laughs> go to every other church that isn't Catholic." Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I know. And, I've and had I've had a number of students that. over the years. Some, you know, I mean, you you probably know this, uh, but. Uh, when they when they talk about like the sort of minority groups in the United States that um, punch way beyond their weight, uh, yeah. it's it's always sort of like Jews, um, Han Chinese, uh, Hindu, South Asians, and Mormons. <laughs> Those are the four groups I that, that. that it always uh, surprises me. There, it's called the the book is called um, the the full package. It's a, it's a really good yeah. book. It's like it's basically uh, like an analysis of the four minority groups that vastly outperform everybody else in the United States, and Mormons are one of the groups. And uh, they sort of list the reasons why, and um, and there's a number of different reasons why. But like one of the reasons why is that uh, Mormons sort of have this huge stress on on languages right so i mean margaret nussbaum in her book on um on uh, it was sort of a response to alan bloom's uh the closing of the american mind it's uh, i'm blanking on the name of it but it was a kind of a defense of liberal arts education in the united states yeah uh, but one of the things she she argues in that well she argues she sort of asserts and it's just plain true she says the the most extensive language program in the united states is not at harvard it's not at yale it's not at princeton it's not at stanford it's at brigham young university so that is Uh. the most extensive language program in the united states and in fact, she said, you know, to the best of her knowledge, it's the most extensive language program on planet Earth in Utah. Yeah. And it's yeah. uh, because well, and, and it's all because they have. want to sort of support missions. So there's classes yeah. at Brigham Young that teach languages that all are kinds only of languages by 10,000 people on planet Earth. And they'll teach that language yeah. so that you can sort of go and fulfill the great commission to go and preach go to them. Yes. all the <laughs> preach the gospel to all the nations right so 
it's yep. uh it's a, a very unique kind of position to to be in i mean that's uh, but yeah i mean i've i've had plenty of students who've gone on their missions to um you know even when they they told me privately that they really didn't they were having a lot of trouble with their faith and they didn't really know if they believed it anymore um yeah. but i i wasn't when i left i didn't think i was having any trouble um when you went to spain yeah when i went and even during it uh, there were i mean i had i had by the time i came back i had some issues but um but going into it i thought i knew every i thought everything was fine really yeah wow. well so, i mean and that's what uh, growing up in your basement you know only reading books that you approve of will do to you <laughs> So how did you get into kind of becoming kind of a classicist? Is it just because you preferred the Aeneid to Leviticus or? Um, that was some of it. Um, well, I, first of all, I wanted to do Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Um, so I was automatically taking more cla- more language classes in Greek and, Greek and Latin outnumbered Hebrew. Um, they had more, more classes that were populated with more people that were taught, in this case, um, I want to uh, not that we had some good Hebrew professors, but uh, the Greek and Latin ones were better. Um, so it was kind of uh, at some point it became a quality choice. At, at, at UGA, I think I still would have done classics. Uh, the other thing that happened was that while I was living in Spain, my whole family moved to Provo um, so that my sister, who was next in line, could finish nursing school. Um, where, where is and, Provo? Uh, it's where Brigham Young University that you just mentioned is located. Okay. So they all wow. moved to Provo. And um, I came back to the States right after living two years in Spain. And my dad said, well, you could go back to Athens in Georgia, right, and keep going to UGA like you were. Um, but you'll be by yourself. Uh, or you could come live with us, right, and you won't have to pay rent. Uh, you can live in, you know, the attic uh, and go to BYU. And I said, well, I've been living in a foreign country for two years. I don't know which end is up. I think I'll move to Provo and live in the attic. <laughs> um, so that's what I did. Wow! I went. I went. I transferred to BYU. Okay. And, and when I got to BYU, that? when I got to BYU, the choice to go into classics was clear because they don't have a biblical studies major. Um, okay. It's not a. It's not an option. Um, yeah, and it, so I like, mean, what? it's basically you know from what I've heard from people that I know who've who've ended up you know teaching there and stuff like that. I mean, it's basically like a like a serious university yeah no like it's it not it's not like it's not a joke it's not to, it's not no, like no. going to like oral roberts or some shit like that like no no um my experience of it was that it was a very good education and um i still know people there right i i have a good friend who works there now as a post-grad um who's not a member one of my professors who had tenure um in classics was not a member um and that was I don't okay know. and that was yeah that was okay um, they as have long, as long as you adhere to a certain kind of code, right? I mean, like right, right. As long as you adhere to a certain kind of code, and it is different for people. Uh, like I would work there myself today if the code for people who used to be active members were the same as for people who were never members. Um, but it's not. Of right? I, I have a, I have, a, are I have always... one of those little marks in my record yeah, that means that if I, ever have, yeah. <laughs> if I ever work there, I have to do certain things. Um, which at this point I think I'm very unlikely to do. So what um, what uh, sort of led you away from 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 the faith? I mean, what was it? Uh... Um, well, it was a number of things. Uh, but if we go back to my mission, uh, what it started with was simply the fact that uh, things didn't work the way that they were supposed to. 
right? So you imagine me, I'm a missionary. Um, a certain amount of, of uh, the way that we the way that we live, right, comes from the fact that our expectations of reality match up with our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I had done all this reading that had prepared me for a certain experience of life um, and a certain experience of missionary work that just didn't turn out to be what I actually saw when I got there. Um, so I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the history of, uh, I, I'm imagining somewhat, you, you're probably actually some, maybe very familiar, maybe more familiar than I am with uh, the history of something like the great, Second Great Awakening in the United States. Very. Um, yeah. So you know these charismatic movements existed, and people would go off and have these camp meetings. Um, the Mormons exported that all over the world. They basically mm-hmm. were doing that. They were doing that in England. Uh, in particular, there was one of, um, one of our apostles who ended up becoming uh, the fourth president of the church. His name is Wilford Woodruff. Um, he went to southern England and had just all these, these sort of crazy experiences where he would knock on doors in random villages and people would tell him, oh, we've been praying that you would, that someone like you would show up. Um, we have 800 people who just want to sit here all night and listen to you talk, right? And so he would talk to them all night and then they would all get baptized and half of them would move, you know, to the United States to join up with uh, the saints in a place <laughs> like you know, Kirtland or Nauvoo or later Salt Lake, um, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> So, so we were being told as missionaries, right? We read this stuff and we're like, this is what you do, right? You, 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 you go out and uh, there are all these people who are ready, right? The field is white, uh, ready to harvest. And uh, you just show up and put yourself in the right uh, frame of mind spiritually and uh, people will be converted and the church will blossom, even in northern Spain, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, – and when that didn't happen, right, we would, we would come up with reasons why. And after about, I'd say, like six months of um, kind of uh, going through the rigmarole of, well, we need to pray more. We need to set goals harder. Um, we need to, I don't know, brush our teeth differently. <laughs> and, and, and you will laugh. But but these are serious ideas that some people had, right? Oh, I've, um, I've been, like I've they been would exactly, down, like we, I've been exactly here. <laughs> <laughs> When I was younger, we, we yeah. would have these meetings, which uh, now they remind me of like Salesforce meetings, right? Yeah. Uh, where you, you call these people together and you sort of psych them up to go and sell insurance or something. Yeah. Um, actually, an, an episode that I remember because we would we would knock buildings, right? Sort of cold call buildings. Yeah. Um, which I quickly learned to loathe because I think it's one of the worst methods possible for well, basically for doing anything. Yeah. Um, but what it is good, there is anyone who has any spare time who's willing to give it to you for any reason, then you will find those people. The problem is um, if you've already knocked you know, a village 60 times in the last five years, why would you think that something had changed? It probably yeah. hasn't. Um, so we, would go, we were going through this building one day, and you know, everyone who's there is like, no, not interested. No, fuck you, not interested. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. And, and right behind us, there's this guy going. Um, and only he's going super fast. Right. Uh, he's also knocking doors and he just he doesn't even wait. He like bangs on the door as hard as he can and shouts, Máquinas a coser! Um, right, <laughs> which is uh, Spanish for sewing machines. Um, he just yells, <laughs> like, sewing machines, sewing machines. Right. And he blitzed through that building so fast. Um, I think he might have found like one person who wanted information on a sewing machine. He's like, oh, thank you. Here you go. Um, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and, and we're all standing there we're like oh man because <laughs> because our approach is all slow and you know trying to kind of uh, sort of seduce people mm-hmm. uh, we didn't think of it that way 
hours. But but that's that's what it was, right? We're trying to be friendly to people, and he's just like, "Nah, I know you hate this, uh, so I'm going to get it over with and just scream." Um, so yeah. you know what I, so you know what I got, and that way you could tell me if you want it. Yeah. Um, well, the thing is, it's have, like I, you know, it's, I had this moment. Yeah, I realized, oh, this is what we're doing. <laughs> But, but no, go ahead. <laughs> we're selling something, yeah. yeah well, right. I mean, the, those early successes were predicated on the fact that you were, these early Mormon missionaries were going to the burned over district of the world. They were yeah. going over oh, to, yeah. they were going to places that had, you know, it, it's sort of like, um, uh, as Alain de Botton says, like the the whole idea of falling in love that you meet you meet the one and you lock eyes and you have this deep connection and like that experience which you know is the way that I met Annalisa who you know mother of my children like like but that experience is culturally conditioned like yeah. it's culturally conditioned by you know, years and years and years and decades and decades of music and movies. And so you're conditioned to have that experience, right? So these, those early kind of crazy successes that the Mormon missionaries had, they were going to areas that had been conditioned by decades and centuries of waiting for yeah. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. somebody to come if you go to a place that has a different, a different oh, yeah. history, uh, they don't know Spain what you're talking about. <laughs> they were not waiting for us. No, they, they, they were, were not. They were... They're waiting for the vacuum <laughs> they were cleaner like, guy. What are you doing here? <laughs> they're waiting for the vacuum cleaner guy, right? So, <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're they don't know what's uh, so that and they that was exactly happy to see him. You know? <laughs> yeah, so that's where your your sort of your problems started. We're in yeah. Spain. Yep. Um. And uh, so, but another good problem that I had in Spain uh, was I actually ran into a Catholic theologian. He was a Jesuit. Oh, um, I didn't God. know this. I didn't know this at the time. <laughs> no, the I didn't. Best. I did. I had no idea at all. Um, we did. We were just tracting, right? We were doing our usual, you know, sewing machines for sale routine. Mm -hmm. And uh, this guy opened up, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you can come in and talk about religion. That's fine." Uh, so we go into his study. Um, his name is Andres Torres Queruga. I don't know how much you know about. Um, uh, Latin American and Latin Americans and and uh, Spanish uh, Jesuits. Uh, mm -hmm. He was into uh, liberation theology was a thing that he did. Wow. Um, and so he had all these his his study. He had a he had a kitchen, a study, and a bedroom. Um, right, because he's a Jesuit. <laughs> 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 he lives by himself, mostly in the study, which was wall to wall books. Um, and he was finishing his latest. He'd written something like twenty books. And of course, I didn't know any of this. Right, I'm just a 19 year old kid. Um, he's like, well, I want to tell you this story about Joseph Smith. And we finished the part about Joseph Smith seeing God and right. And God having a body and all this. And he says, well, that's very interesting. I, I just can't think about God that way. Um, and then he, he, he sort of told us what he was doing. He was writing a, a book about the resurrection, um, of Jesus naturally, mm -hmm. uh, that was sort of trying to understand, uh, what, what the mythology of resurrection means. Um, for people in any culture at any moment in time as sort of a universal, which is a, a very liberation theology thing to do. And uh, I was very interested by him, mostly because I, I, there was no way, right, uh, some some other missionaries might try to say something like, well, his faith couldn't be genuine or something. Um, but just the way that he talked and the way that he was, to me, he seemed to have a perfectly genuine faith, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Sure. 
and there were other people I met like him who who had genuine faith who didn't want to be Mormons. A lot of them though tended to be um, in, in some in some cases, right? They would come. They wouldn't come from the Spanish culture, so they they would. You couldn't always understand them very well. They, they might be Brazilians or Africans, um, and you might think like so, again, some missionaries would be like, "Well, they just haven't been educated or something." <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> they would also do things that you might be familiar with, like uh, well, like the Mormons used to do, uh, like uh, have meetings where everyone jumps up and starts yelling in tongues suddenly. Um, or uh, my favorite was when we went to um, a Brazilian um, Pentecostal church, and uh, there were a bunch of kids in the back who had uh, musical instruments that they would just play like randomly, um, as moved upon by the spirit, mm-hmm. um, which, which didn't always put, they weren't always in tune or whatever, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it worked right. My, my, the other missionaries were sitting there like looking at me like, I can't believe this is happening. Because yeah. <laughs> if someone tried to do that in one of our meetings, they were probably thinking, if you did this in Salt Lake, right, you would be in jail probably. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't know this was a thing. I didn't yeah. know you could go to church and have like you know everyone yelling and uh, a bunch of kids like banging on drums and you know tubas. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was one kind of weird. Experience. Yeah, we we had a guy, we had a, a drunk guy who came into our church a couple of years ago on uh, I think it was on Easter Sunday actually, and he was just being like kind of outrageous and. Yeah. Um, and we actually forcibly like removed him. It removed him and called the police <laughs> and like had him but i remember thinking like you know there's some charismatic churches where this would have been just like you know like, so, oh yeah brother yeah yeah in, integrated <laughs> into like the the dionysian orgy somehow like yeah, yeah. Oh, but exactly uh, but he was like, like out of it and he was clearly drunk and being an idiot yeah. and so we like you know right. wrestled him out of the out of the church. <laughs> but, um. Oh, well, so, so I'm having all these experiences, right? I, I mentioned the Jesuit on purpose because that was an experience that really touched me. Not that the other ones didn't, but it was close enough to my own experience, right? Here's a guy who spends all of his time essentially in his basement reading books mm-hmm. um, as a faith that looks very much like mine, except that uh, all the content uh, of his ideas is, you know, radically different. He's yeah. like, well, God, God could never be a concrete person because that would mean that he ceased to be God, and this is why, right? And yeah. I'm like, well, all, the, all those words make sense. Hmm. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. right? So my companion's like, well, he's just wrong, and I'm like, well, I don't see how he's wrong, um, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I so I go home thinking, well, there are all the and and then besides him, right? You also have the ecstatic people who even if even if you you could say, well, that's just weird, and I wouldn't do that, right? And oh, he was drunk, so of course he wasn't right. Um, <laughs> to me, I, I would still say, well, they had something, right? Yeah. Um, and some of them were really good, nice people, meaning I would be happy to live with them. And I, I, I wasn't sure that there was anything wrong with them that needed to be fixed, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so I get home and I'm thinking maybe that's different than I thought. And then I go to BYU. Um, and while I'm going to BYU, it's really at the end of my experiences at BYU and going to grad school, right? Um, that I sort of start putting everything together and finally realizing that uh, that the church can't be what I sort of thought it was when I was living in my basement. Um, and I had kind of accepted, right, there's this kind of narrative that we have in Mormonism that we teach in places like Sunday school, historically, um, which runs along the lines of, well, Jesus established a church. Uh, that church went into apostasy because people are wicked, 
And uh, then in the middle of the 19th century, God decided to bring it all back. Yeah. Um, Right. That's it in a nutshell, basically. Um, So while I was at BYU, I kept doing things like studying early Christianity, um, trying to look for, you know, what it really was and how we restored it. And at some point, uh, it wasn't during my education at BYU. I didn't I didn't finish it at BYU. I had some friends who did who who sort of tiptoed around me because they realized at some point. Um, oh, we can't tell you everything because if we told you what all of our research has revealed, we'd also have to tell you that we now realize that we weren't really restoring anything in the 19th century. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Jesus wow. was more of a hippie. Jesus was more of a hippie than you know any of anyone who had found an institutional church, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I got there too. I just took, um, a- as usual with most things in life, I got there slowly. <laughs> um, so I finished at BYU. Uh, I did meet my wife before I left. We didn't get married, though. She was uh, fin- she finished her master's in English and was going to OSU, where she was going to start a PhD. Um, when I went to Durham, North Carolina, to start my PhD, and I that's, thought, "Wow, Oklahoma and North Carolina that's not that's not so close." Oh, they're very far away. <laughs> that's um, like what sixteen OSU- hours. This OSU was the Ohio State, so it was actually a little oh. bit closer. It's so okay. It's okay. How mo- uh, how far was the drive? Um, the drive was I want to say something more more like six hours, so doable. Oh, somewhere between okay. six and eight. Um, she did make it a few times. I, I was willing to go, um, but she would she was always come or before I I'd be like, well, I'll come, you know, I don't know when the semester's over, and she's like, well, I'm coming tomorrow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So OSU runs on a quarter system, so they 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 were always done sooner. Um, and when they were working, they were working harder than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I, I justify it. Is about well, my my wife is the quick one. I'm I'm the slow one. Um, <laughs> she figured out relatively quickly that she didn't really want a PhD in English. Uh, she already had a job that was a, a good job for her. Turns out um, she's since moved on in that job and been promoted several times. And now now she's. Um, doing way better with uh, that than I, uh, than I am. Um, but so she decided a PhD in English is kind of a waste of time. And I really want to marry you is what I want to do. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm going to quit this PhD thing and we're going to get married. Um, and how old so were she, you at that point? At, uh, when we got married, I was 26. Okay. At 26 or 27. Um, and we had, uh, and how old was first, she? she was also 20. She might've been, no, she was 25. Yeah, she was twenty twenty six. Yeah, Annalise and I were twenty five as well. We were uh, yeah when we got. I think that's a good age. I, I've seen. I mean, in uh, Mormon terms, we were both uh, heading heading towards you know um, infamy and spinsterhood. But um, <laughs> uh, right, all, all of our friends, all of our friends got married. You know, like when they were twenty three. Yeah, um, I have this one former student of mine who I I I talk with on Facebook very often and. Uh, He's he just turned twenty twenty six, and yeah. he, he's one of he's one of four, and uh, yeah, his three siblings, all of them are married. Um, one of them has three kids, one of them has two, and the other one has two twins as well. So like he's just like an old man. Who's just gonna yes. like 
die. Like we with get his, together at Christmas, yeah, and I'm like, he's gonna oh, die oh. with his cat, you know, like like <laughs> alone, you know, <laughs> crying into his cereal or something like. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, that, that's kind of. And he's like, and I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm like in my family, I'm considered to be just. You know, just this like weird, weird anachronism, you know, like Yeah. Like, oh, why are you still doing that? Yeah. <laughs> you you does it still work? <laughs> like, like uh, Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you got married twenty six, twenty five, and then um and then and then uh, you did your I PhD. To, I, I went straight for the PhD. I didn't do a master's. Um, and I had a kind of existential crisis in the midst of it where I realized, well, I, I can't believe that the institutional church is what I've been telling myself it is. Um, and at the time it felt like that meant that I had to, that I had to step out. Um, I don't think everyone has to step out. Right? Some, some of my friends while I was at BYU, right, are still in, um, some of them even work at BYU now, but, uh, but they had something different. They had a different relationship, I think, with the church and with their families in the church. Um, in my case, right, uh, my parents are both converts, so I don't have extensive uh, extended family in the church. In fact, most of my extended family were kind of, um, especially on my dad's side, were kind of um, worried about him when he became a Mormon. They, mm -hmm. they sort of thought that was that was like a, a weird step and yeah. <laughs> could be a wrong direction, but. Uh, um, so when I said, well, I'm not really, um, they were, <laughs> no, right. yeah. I didn't have, I guess what I'm trying to say is I didn't have, I didn't have heavy family pressure and, and my parents didn't cut me off or anything. Uh, my mom actually came around and now she isn't a Mormon anymore. Um, although I didn't try to influence that in any way. She's um, what? I think she's no longer a Mormon. Oh, wow. She, she consider herself she she's always been something of an evangelical christian i think even as a mormon that was kind of her um she was willing to accept mormonism right until until she got to know it better mm -hmm. um, and if i didn't exist if i didn't exist then she might never have gotten to know it better um and, and, but she still does have a very sort of unreconstructed um 19th century folk american christianity reading of the bible that that's kind of what she does Mm -hmm. um, she would be very, she would be very happy um, going to those sermons that Wilfred Woodruff taught, even if she ended up saying, "Well, he's not a real apostle." Uh, <laughs> she, she's definitely from. I'm, the, I'm she's very. From the yeah, I'm. I'm very sympathetic to your mother's view. On an yeah. emotional level, I'm very. I I like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't intellectually necessarily agree with it, but I. Emotionally, that is a a flavor of of religion that just it yeah. just feels really really nice to me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was part of part of what I realized too. Um, part of my existential crisis, in some ways, was recognizing that my life is not a series of formulae that I enact. Yeah, um, and I didn't know what to do with that, right? Because at the same, if you um, if you've ever well, you've been to grad school, you know that it's kind of its own kind of cult, really. Yep. Um, yep. In fact, the the university is a religious institution. Um, so while I was having this moment of crisis with the church, I also had it with the university, and I don't think I ever really recovered. So I like to say, um, I was trying to be a Mormon academic. Uh, in the end, I was too academic to be a good Mormon, and I was also too Mormon to be a good academic. So I'm sort of a <laughs> failed Mormon who is also a failed academic. 
Which um, makes that's... you a successful human being. <laughs> because either well, of those I... paths <laughs> taken too far lead to to badness. They lead yes, to fine. badness and insanity. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I was saying the other day, you know, like the the number of of people that my wife and I know who developed serious mental health problems. And these are people that had no prior history of mental health problems, like personally or in their family. Like the people we know who developed serious mental health problems, uh, serious substance abuse problems while they were in grad school. It's a very long list. I mean, we yeah. we went to funerals. People who killed themselves. People who overdosed. Oh yeah, I saw you. Posted yeah, about and it. like this is like they had no prior history of this. It yeah. was grad school. Literally drove them crazy. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and, uh, and I see how it, part of the the crisis was recognizing. Oh, this is like being on a mission, and I already know all this doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, well, you just need to have more faith and market yourself to more hiring committees, and I'm like, nope. No, I can't. I've already been there. (laughs) I already did this. I already know it doesn't work. Well, I I know people who I I know people who who went to All I got was punched in the face. Yeah, exactly, right? But but I know people who went to missions and had just spectacular experiences. Like where they just they had such wonderful where they they met people who were really sort of looking for some sort of like grammar and order for their lives. And yeah, they were there to provide it and they just, and lapped, it all fell they lapped it, it up <laughs> and they felt just amazing and they were so happy and it worked. Right. Yeah, so yeah. it's uh that, that does happen. Like it. Oh yeah. Well, and I, I know often. enough, like I, I know enough Mormons that I know it does happen, but it, it just doesn't happen to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe because of where you went. That's true. I, right. And I did. I won't, I won't say um, I did have. There was one gentleman. Um, he he was uh, converted to Je- Jehovah's Witnesses um, as a young person. And uh, so he let us in and we talked to him. He was having doubts about being a Jehovah's Witness when we met him. Um, and he became a Mormon for some time. And I was involved with him. Um, I'm still good friends with him, but uh, he he since moved out of Mormonism as well. <laughs> right? Well, you so. know, the people who get into this, they they usually, you know, they're one thing. You know, it's like Eric Hoffer says, right? Like in the the true believer, yes, they yes. they they sort of they, there was a really kind of scandalous study that was done in Canada. Um, I don't know, if, probably something like this has been done in the United States, but. It was an analysis, a very detailed sociological analysis of the Pentecostal church in Canada. And what they found is that the vast majority of the people who had supposedly converted to Pentecostalism were basically people who had sort of gone from being Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Catholics. Basically, they were just sort of going from one flavor of Christian to another. Yes. And so the the sort of in-house propaganda of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, which was that, oh, we are like just, we are so unbelievably awesome. We're going and like converting people in the streets 
Um, they said, eh, no, not really. You're, <laughs> no, you're, you're, it's like Wilford Woodruff. You found the choir in the streets. Exactly. You. Like you're, you're basically <laughs> just, you're sort of flipping people's allegiances who are already on team Christian. So like yes. you're just flipping their allegiances. Like you're not converting the heathen. <laughs> you're oh, not converting right. like people. You're not cold calling people and like actually converting them. Like I know that's your like your propaganda, but actually you're just you're just stealing from one church to fill yours. Like yeah, and um, well, that was, and that this was this study like. was yeah. so roundly like trashed, but it was incredibly <laughs> solid. It was really solid. They had like well, I could they had it. like the numbers were unbelievable. They they had like a if I remember correctly the the sample size was was something that you almost never see in social science like like we're talking it was like close to 90,000 yeah big it was you know in a country of 30 million it was i mean that's like that's massive like that's a really huge huge chunk of people where you can actually say something and what they showed is that uh I can't remember the exact number, but it was like something oh, ridiculous, like ninety-five percent of oh, the people, well, and, and of all the people, all the people we converted, uh, most of them were already Christian as well. Yeah, and you're so just, just sort of flipping their their yeah, allegiance like, well, from I'll go one to, your to another. Yeah, I'll, I'll do your baptism. I'll read your book. It's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then you went, you went from there, and then how did you? How do you get a job once you've sort of left that milieu? Oh, well, um, the, the short answer is you don't. Um, <laughs> the long answer is the long answer is we're so desperate for, you know, um, people who will teach classes for almost no money um, that the fact that I'm able to do this um, means that I can always find a job. It's, it's like living in Chicago, right? Um, I, I am the right, I have the right qualifications, um, to be okay in academia, which is minimal competence. Um, the people who are most, (laughs) the people who are most miserable in academia are those who, who might actually be somewhat good as academics, but have, haven't gotten there yet because there's no room for them, right? The billionaires club or or the tenured club just isn't going to let them in for a while. Um, yeah. For what for what reason or another? I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, right? Uh, there are many different reasons all across the market, and I can't know all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the short answer is, uh, there are relatively few tenured positions and way too many people who are qualified to do them. Um, so many that uh, I, I did go right. I went to several professional meetings. I was having like all sorts of doubts though, because again, these professional meetings to me were just like mission conferences. Yeah, um, and they were having all the same debates there, which which I had already started to weary of in my mission, right? Where we were like, well, what are we actually doing? Oh, maybe it's this. So maybe it's that. Or maybe if we all brushed our teeth this way, right? Then everyone yeah. would be, then everything would be good. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> or maybe not. Um, <laughs> maybe they just don't so, like what we're selling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. Uh, maybe we need to readjust uh, the, the way that we do this. Um, but that's not really popular to say. Um, to <laughs> academics or to Mormon, right? My my problem was that I was sort of always a flaming heretic. It's it's like every time I have an I actually have an opinion. I used to be happy, right? I'd be like, oh, I actually think something about this. Um, and when I was um, uh, again younger, I would just blurt it out, right? Someone mm-hmm. would be like, 
so why don't we do this? And I'd be like, well, here's why we don't do that. Uh, <laughs> they're like, well, you faithless bastard. Yeah. I have to report you to the president now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, well, how did, that, how did your dad sort of respond to this evolution? Um, initially, um, very sadly, um, but he, he, he came around to, he, he came around to accept me when he realized that, um, my not being an active Mormon didn't mean that I had suddenly decided to, um, invest heavily in crack, um, yeah. <laughs> or leave my wife to sleep with whores. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're like, oh, he's still my son and he's still a decent man. A decent human being. Oh, he's I guess just, I can have He just around. doesn't, he doesn't sign on to the dogma anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. Essentially. Yeah. Um, and there were things that I lost that I do kind of regret. I mean, for my own kids, right? I I do like some of um, the things about Mormon culture. Of course, growing up in Utah Valley, they're kind of immersed in Mormon culture, whether they want to be or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it it is for me. Kind of, it's always been kind of a mixed bag in the sense that as I look back, right, there are good and bad experiences to be had with church, and I certainly don't look at my own experience as somehow normative for everyone. Um, I, I don't think that people should have my experience necessarily um, mm-hmm. or see my, my behavior as a Mormon as some kind of commentary on their own. I don't think that's how it works. No, I, um, I don't think that comes through in any of your writings or anything you say. But uh, but do they go to – I mean, do they attend services? Like, uh, My dad still does, and I have a brother who's also no, I mean active. your kids. Oh, my kids. Um, no, not really. I mean, unless someone dies or um, – <laughs> There's something that happened. They're sort of like, uh, well, this is the funny part, right? I, I went to northern Spain to try to convert essentially stubborn atheist Catholics. Um, and I think they rubbed off on me about as much as I rubbed off on them. I, I became sort of a stubborn atheist Mormon. Um, <laughs> not, not because I meant to, but I just absorbed uh, exactly enough Catholicism and actually uh, exactly enough northern Spanish Catholicism. Yeah. Um, to, to be the kind of person who's like, well, it's Easter, we should go to church. Yeah. Uh, and then you get to church and you're like, man, why is he saying all that dumb shit from the pulpit? And, and the cursing is also <laughs> Spanish, by the way. Um, yeah, I, I did, I, it's funny. I, my I, parents never swore. Uh, my first experience with English swear words was, uh, again, I was out in, in that same playground in Golden Springs Elementary and I, they had a trailer and someone had written all these nonsense words on the trailer. Um, and I just started sounding out the words, and they were weird to me because I didn't know – no one ever used those words, right? Mm-hmm. My, parents, my parents just don't swear. Uh, the closest that they come to swearing is my mom will occasionally say, bull, and now I know what the, le- the next part of that word is. But, yeah. um, but when I was a kid, I didn't. I'm like, why does mom talk about bulls when she's you know, mad? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> my mother – it's funny because like my – same thing. My, uh, my parents would – almost never swear and it was only when they were very very startled or extremely angry yeah so i remember like one time when i was like i was maybe 12 13 and i remember we were all out i can't even remember the the full context but we were at a softball game and or like and it was that night and we had all like left the field and we have driven like about I don't know a mile away from like the field and suddenly my mom like was looking around this big station wagon like in the back and she said where's Felicity 
just my little sister. And they were like, she's not there. And she went, fuck. And she swore. And I I had never heard her say that. And she's like, stop the fucking car now. Like, and like, and it was just, I mean, it's like burned into, this was, you know, over 30 years ago. And I remember it so clearly because I had never heard my mother talk like that. And she said, go back now. And like, they like, and turned around and they drove back and sure enough Felicity was there standing crying hysterically because <laughs> everybody had oh, left without her. Left her, yeah. She's like this little well, little kid. And she's like, you know, eight years old or something. And like she was just like crying, crying, and like they had like left her. But that was like the first time I'd ever heard my mother swear. And I yeah. don't think uh, I, I still haven't I, I've never heard my parents swear, um, and I never swore before I went to northern Spain, where every other word is a swear word. <laughs> so I learned how to swear in Spanish before in English, and it was mostly because all the swear words were, you know, directed at me. They were they were mostly names for me. I, that was my my first week. Was what did he say? I know Spanish, but what what did he say? What? <laughs> What's a coño? And then I look go look it up. I'm like, oh, that's what it is. Okay. <laughs> It's funny because my uh, my my wife she never swore until she was in her twenties, and then she went and she worked as a trader on Wall Street. Oh yeah, and, cool. uh, well that'll tell you too. And it was just this, you know, these guys were just like she was one of like I don't know, like twelve women in this like firm of a few hundred guys. And it was just this, she went from being a good little Lutheran girl who taught Sunday school all the way through university to like getting her first real job in the world after she graduated was working at um, this, this at Daytech, you know, on Wall Street. And she just, it was a baptism in fire. And like, <laughs> these guys, and she has all these hilarious stories where, she, <laughs> well, first of all, they're, they're swearing all the time. But she, yeah, would, yeah. she would go out to like shows with them. And, you know, she's in her early 20s here. And um, she was so innocent that she went, <laughs> I can't even say this out loud. Um, <laughs> she, she went to a Chemical Brothers concert in New York City with a bunch of her coworkers, and she was dancing and having a really good time. And she said, "I didn't understand why they kept going to the bathroom all the time." Oh, well, there you go. And they, I'm like, it was a Chemical Brothers concert. You didn't put it together. She's like, I had no idea. Why they kept going to the bathroom and like coming back with like white powder on their nose? Like I, had... <laughs> it's just a weird thing. Yeah, they're just saying. Uh, yeah, they they get more energy when they come back from the bathroom. But um, but <laughs> she, <laughs> but yeah, she like <sighs> she eventually went native and yeah. started like swearing like the traders and. Now it's so funny because, like, with our our kids, they when they were growing up, they thought they're like, yeah, daddy never swears and mommy swears. 
because <laughs> I oh, never yeah. I never swore <laughs> around them until they were like you know I mean they're now they're they're grown men at this point so like they're they're yeah. very it's amazing it's like I I really lucked out they're they're 15 and 17 but if you would talk to them they seem like like they're 30 like you can have oh, a well. conversation with either of them like you're talking to like just like a guy like just like a normal like they they have no kind of pettiness or immaturity or stupidity or they don't say any like it, there's none of the kind of like yeah just like dumb kind of like bro sort of they're yeah, just yeah. like well, they're very you can have like an intelligent conversation with them about anything and yeah. they're you know they're like well, ready ready and able to like have that conversation and they can talk like like they they never um i in like the last sort of 7 years let's say i i've never had a situation where they were in any way embarrassing mm. like they're always just like they're actually more i find them more interesting than than adults most of the time yeah yeah so like they're just really smart and and funny and and engaging and stuff like that but but they would say they're like yeah yeah mommy swears all the time i'm like you have no idea <laughs> 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 she was corrupted by wall street actually it's it's annalisa that introduced me to nasim nicholas taleb which is how uh -huh. i met you right yeah so, that's true yeah because yeah. She, she was a trader and she had read all of his early stuff like the stuff that yeah. didn't like make him famous because right. he was like a he was a quant and he was right. he wrote these like you know massive tomes on like you know how to like you know really amazing like high tech because she's a real math person as well right, right. real math geek and which uh, i am not i'm yeah not i'm not either yeah but she but she read him you know just like riveted and thought he was like a total so when he's when he became famous for his prose she she yeah. was actually really surprised cuz she thought of him as like a like a nerd like a geek right you know who is this like kind of trading whiz who had these really amazing kind of like strategies and stuff like that and so he, she read, um, she read "Fooled by Randomness" and just loved it. And she's like, "You gotta read this! It's so amazing!" I was like, "Yeah, whatever." Uh, um, <laughs> and then he came out with uh, the Black Swan, and it made like a huge splash. And she's like, "Okay, come on! Now everybody's reading this guy. You gotta read him. He's actually really, really amazing. And but she had been into him for years at that point. Yeah. And um so I I read The Black Swan and I was like, wow, this is really quite fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But well, I, how, I how really appreciated how did you discover him? Uh when I was having my existential crisis, I found fooled by randomness. Mm. And I really liked it. Um and helped me. Well, because the the nice thing that he does with that book, from my perspective, is sort of sketch how uh, the way that he thinks relates to what he does. Um, 
which was always the sticky, the hard sticking point for me was I kept discovering that I had certain ideas about how the world works um, that didn't necessarily reflect what I was actually doing. Um, and this would become most obnoxious to me when I would sort of notice, oh, well, we have this idea about what should be happening, say, in my mission or in my grad, in my, my field of study, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we have this idea of what should be happening, and it's not what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I want a language that talks about uh, how we actually live. Um, and Fooled by Randomness sort of provided that, said, well, this is how we we talk about things, as though we knew what was happening, but the truth is that we're fooled by randomness. Um, yeah. And that made a lot of sense to me. Um, when he said that, th- several things. Like, um, I, I liked reading history my whole life. That was something that I'd continue to do. Um, another reason why I picked classics was because it let me read, keep, continue reading more history than just biblical. Um, yeah. And, um, and that, that made a lot of sense uh, to the historian in me as well, who, who, <laughs> who wants to say, right, sort of tell a story of what actually happens versus what we say about it. Um, <laughs> and there's some really annoying you know, sort of trends in history where it's like, well, we want to learn from history and uh, there's a problem with learning from history when you think that you can learn from history how you are immortal um, or not subject to any of the flaws that uh, your ancestors had because, I don't know, something called progress happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just didn't see it. In my experience, I, I, I was like, well, I don't see that. I don't see how I am not. Uh, to me, it looks like it's only by accident that I'm not a Nazi, if that makes sense. Um, not oh, because I'm a horrible person. Yeah. Not that I'm not 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 because I'm a horrible person, but because I'm you know not born in Germany, um, not you know sort of backed into a corner. <laughs> right? yeah. It's like if if I were trapped in circumstances like a lot of Nazis, I might become one, um, and I don't think that that would uh, necessarily reflect um, sort of. Uh, <laughs> it's I would like to stop it. I would like to, um, if you like, uh, sort of maximize my ability to get away from bad bets. Uh, but I don't think there's such a thing as um, educating myself out of ever making them, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And also, you know, people, and, and people, like, it, people right? like us who are, you know, in, in many respects, we're sort of like survivors. We're, we're kind of like the kind of people that are, are going to like sort of rebel against the norm just enough you know, to yeah. find like, but if you look at history, chances are we wouldn't have been the people that actually bucked the system. No. I mean, the people who actually bucked the system, one thing that is just like sort of jumps out at me, like in my study of history, is that the people who are actually the rebels and the who fight against like the system, whatever the system is at the, at the time. Right. Right. They tend to be just horrible people. I mean, just like, not like, you know, to know them personally, they're not good wives and husbands. They're not good mothers and fathers. They're not good friends. They tend to be just like really kind of toxic, difficult people, you know, to know. And so, if you're not like that, if you're not a highly disagreeable person, you probably <laughs> would have ended up being the Nazi. <laughs> I mean, like, or because well, you try to accommodate the system that exists. Yeah, 
um, as much as you can until you notice, oh, well, I can't, this is as far as I can go, but no further is kind of how I felt on my mission too. That was what, what ended up happening was we sort of had, um, things we were supposed to do. And eventually you would arrive at a moment where you had to say, am I willing to do this? And the answer is always no at some moment. Yeah. Well, if you so heard, would, uh, if you heard this, uh, there's a podcast, the daily, right. Which is put out by the New York times and mm-hmm. they, they've had a number of sort of series on the, the Mormons on church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and yes. uh, one they had today, which was on like sort of sexual abuse of kids, by and they've had a, like a long series on this of uh, sort of Mormons who, because there's this practice within the church. I mean, you can probably, you know, you probably know about yeah. it far better than I do, but um, it's a practice where you do confession to an elder. Oh yes, uh, yeah, like worthiness interviews with yeah. bishops. And that, that there was a like a long tradition of elders basically sort of abusing this power and yeah. getting like oh yeah yeah tell me tell me and then what did, <laughs> tell me more about your yeah, sexual sin yeah 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 what, 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 I would like to know in what, detail what, what did they, he do then it. what are you doing with your hands <laughs> no. nothing I'm uh, yeah like oh, yes. like what do you like I mean you yep. probably. And, and apparently this was like a really, really my, big... My, my own experience with that was uh, painful and awkward, but, you know, not abusive. Yeah. It's, it's funny because when... I was not... I, was not uh, I had no uh, predators for bishops, but I have heard some really horrible stories about it. Yeah. It, it's it's funny because when it came out, when the series came out um, on that, I asked like a bunch of my friends and former students who grew up in the, in the church, and I said... Uh, you know, what was your experience of this? And I, I would say about nobody. I mean, obviously, I, I have a small sample size. It was like maybe, yeah. I don't know, maybe like in total, like 18 people. Um, yeah. But but from the sample size I have, nobody said they were in any way kind of it was there was no abuse or any weirdness. But they about half of them said um it was incredibly awkward. Yes. And it was like talking to somebody who has no training <laughs> whatsoever yeah. to be talking about this, who is like well, a, and also a total no, dork I mean, and is really yeah, awkward. And, and also often has no interest. It's like, I'm required to ask you this now. Um, please bear with me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the other half, and this is what always messes with me. The other half told me I got incredibly wise advice from a yeah. sensitive listener who was like really, really empathetic and gave me good advice that helped me to yeah, like that helped me. Yeah. 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 Which sense. you know, if you're you know, if you're somebody like us, that's not an answer we're not we're, <laughs> it's like, hey, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> like, uh, Well, it's not supposed to, especially in the beginning, if you want there to be, right, if you want there to be one right answer. I don't know. As a teenager, I would have said, well, that's the only right answer. That's the only answer you should get, right, mm-hmm. um, is that uh, God, God's appointed servants did his work, of course. Um, he wouldn't choose people to do things that don't work. Um, 
even, even but there again there was a disconnect with my own experience which was that it didn't really work and it was very awkward and did not help um but but i think a lot of that has to do with uh <laughs> we can't all be um if you like uh best friends with the best bishops if that makes sense yeah. not everyone's cut out to be counselor that way <laughs> yeah some people are and sometimes they happen to be bishops and it works out great um well, it, it just amazes me that <laughs> even in the most even in the most screwed up situations, um, humans we're a really really amazing animal. We're really amazing, and we're we're very good at like being social. And so, even in the most screwed up situations, you can find Homo sapien sapien uh, yeah, behaving yeah. in an admirable and yeah, you know, amazing manner, and you're just like, wow, like we we rock. <laughs> We're yeah, kind yeah. of even in a in a screwed up situation, we can end up being really nice. Yeah, no, and that that was, I mean, it's interesting because uh, my mission, all of my experiences in the church are like this. I, I saw a lot of good things along with all the bad stuff. Um, my my own problem with it as an individual was just the fact that I I couldn't say i couldn't um participate without believing it if that makes sense that makes perfect sense i think there are some people yeah. who participate i know now that there are people who participate all the time without believing it at all yep. because they believe in the way that it they believe in the way that it works they yeah. they just don't care what people say um and that's fine right if i had come up with that perspective i might still be in the church um but that wasn't the perspective that I had. That's not how I developed it. And and I actually need it, right? Part of what I got from church was the ability to discuss with people, like, what do we actually do? Um, that was something I valued in the church as a teenager um, that then just went away suddenly when I became an adult and realized, oh, that's not what we actually do, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's a, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but there's a, a really amazing novel. Oh, God, why can I not remember her name? I read it a a few years ago, but it's um it it's about this like family and they're originally Pakistani and they move they ended up like immigrating to London and it's just about like sort of like almost like a kind of like a Thomas Mann type novel, like mm -hmm. a like a family story, right? And um and the brother who becomes who completely rejects Islam and refuses uh -huh. to go to services and becomes like a hardcore because uh, he just can't believe it anymore and becomes right. like a drug dealer and like a total like gangster and a thug and stuff like that. He's the one who eventually comes around and becomes like an Islamist and joins like ISIS. Yeah. Right. His yep. his brothers, who never really took it very seriously to start off with, who always were just like, yeah, whatever, it's bullshit. You just do it. It's nice. Yeah. It's a family. It's tradition. Um, they're never the ones that become Islamists. It's the one brother who is the black sheep, who like couldn't believe because he didn't like the kind of liberal. Islam, the kind of 
moderated kind of making concessions to the modern world kind of Islam right. that he found at, at the mosque that his family went to. He was like, this is bullshit. I don't believe any of this. He was yeah. the one. It's like, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Like, it's yeah. the, the most fervent believers are the ones that make the most fervent atheists. Yeah, no, I think that's true. In my experience, too. Well, and and part of my existential crisis was sort of realizing that I was setting myself up as one of as someone like Eric Hoffer's true believer, right? Someone who's who's sort of possessed by an idea and has to live it out all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kept realizing that's maybe not the best way to live your life. Um, yeah. The more I lived, the more it seemed like it wasn't, right? It's like, well, my life keeps teaching me that ideas are sort of like tools, and if I just grab onto the stove, no matter whether it's on or off, I'm going to have a bad day. Um, <laughs> it's good, it's yeah. good to be able to let go sometimes, you know? Not because I hate – and I don't need to destroy my stove. I just need to you know, stop grabbing it when I've turned it on. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, brought, I brought both of you – know, we brought both of our kids to church, and – it's interesting because like, you know, our older son, he kind of like, he, Tristan, he, um, he liked it and he went through confirmation class and he went through all that stuff and he liked it. But Indy by the age of like 12, basically, you know, pretty early on, he sort of said, he declared himself as our younger son as a philosophical atheist and mm. he said he didn't want to go anymore but what's interesting is that like his not wanting to go anymore it wasn't like i i would rather just like sort of hang out on sunday morning i don't want to go to church it was like principled like he actually was like i i don't believe this and i'm i remember he went through like a sort of like many sort of existential kind of depression. He was like, mm-hmm. he was depressed about it. He was like, I wish I no. could believe this. Cause this well, that is was, a great that was story. Me in grad school. That was me in grad school. Yeah. It's like you were, you wished you could believe it. Right. And I, it's like, I remember when I could and now I just can't. Yeah. Uh, I think that's something that uh, we didn't quite get uh, as missionaries too, right? You would run into people who used to be believers. Um, and they would often be very interesting because, uh, again, what you're supposed to do is just uh, sort of tell them more fervently what you believe, and uh, this will somehow touch them, maybe, possibly. Um, but then if you have that kind of question yourself, if you ever have reason yourself to doubt um, your own ideas about life, uh, you realize, oh, well, that's that's not how it works, right? I, I don't just hear someone else tell me that – well, I, I like to say like uh, – <laughs> If I, if my experience of the world right now is that it's raining, it doesn't really help when you tell me with your, your, the biggest smile you can muster. But 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 can't you see the sun is shining and there is no rain? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like no, I I can't see. <laughs> I yeah. cannot see this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's hard. It's hard for people to see. It's uh, but yeah, I remember he was just he went through this whole depression where he was just like uh, kind of I don't believe any of this stuff and. I wish I did because I don't want to die. Yeah. And yeah. 
I don't want people that I love to die and the prospect that everything I love is going to die eventually and I'm going to die. Um, that I find that very sad and I, I wish I could believe something else, but I don't. Right. And, um, and so we, we sort of said, well, right. That's your position. Like you don't have to come anymore, but, uh, but it's interesting because they like most of the other kids his age who were in our church, they had the attitude like, ah, eh, this is just like a like a cultural thing. They didn't take it seriously, right? right? So which is was, which is most people in most churches, in my experience. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, I I think there's there will some, always be something. Like with my mission campaign, this was another weird thing about going on a mission was that I realized that there are uh, there isn't really sort of one kind of Mormon. Um, there are Mormons care, always care about some things and there are ways in which they're bound to the church. But often what they'll identify as their Mormon identity within the church um, will look really weird to someone who didn't grow up with them in the same place that they grew up. in. Give me, um, give me an example. A, um. Well, uh, like the idea that we don't play tubas in church, um, that that's that's one of them. Where it's like uh, some people are like, well, you can't have um, reverence is kind of a value that God has, that Mormon has, that Mormons have, and they identify reverence as uh, something specific. They have something specific in mind, and they know when you break it. Right? If mm-hmm. you play tubas, if you play tubas in a church, you've broken it. Um, or if you bear an honest testimony of something that is not true for Mormons, like God doesn't have a body, um, if you say that, um, they're like, well, you, you can't bear an honest testimony of that because it's not true. <laughs> right? That's irreverent. Yeah. Um, whereas other Mormons are like, no, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> uh, one that uh, actually threw some people for a loop. Um, again, th- this is a, a mistake that I made that came from doing too much scripture study. Uh, Mormons are actually very schizophrenic in terms of what they believe about the nature of God. There's a passage in the Book of Mormon um, where a prophet named Abinadi basically confesses the Trinity. Um, and uh, this is because, right, uh, Trinitarianism is an important part of uh, the Christian milieu that Mormonism comes from. Yeah. Uh, and Joseph Smith himself, at various moments in his life, was a Trinitarian. Uh, now, ultimately, he didn't right that's not how that's not the canonical version we got um right there were there was uh basically when he wrote the book of mormon he was still in new york and Mm -hmm. uh he was still a trinitarian and then by the time he died in nauvoo he had he had moved on um and become something more radical um and that was the vision that we inherited was oh mormons are not trinitarian uh but i had i remember once we were having uh, this discussion with an evangelical who was being really stubborn and sort of trying to insist that we had to be heretics because we didn't believe Trinitarianism, basically. So I quoted this passage to him and told him, well, we do believe that. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. just, just, you know, to try to stop that part of the discussion. And my companion looked over at me like I was insane and said, wait, what? <laughs> right, and, and, had, and had like a crisis because he realized that this is a scripture. Um, <laughs> it's actually there. Right, like, oh no, this is in the Book of Mormon. Oh no, <laughs> this can't be here. I, I can't be hearing this. What? <laughs> My whole life is a lie. You know that guy. Kind yeah, of, uh, which I didn't anticipate at all because, um, again, I, I had just 
been sort of used to it. I'm like, well, of course you went to seminary, so you read this. It's like, no, I went to seminary, so I slept through the part where we read that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so is that, like, do your kids get any of this stuff? Um, not really, no. Just through the grandparents once in yeah, a while, just through, maybe? Uh, yeah, my, my uh, wife's parents are still in. Um, and uh, my mom likes to read them Bible stories. Uh, unfortunately, she really likes the Old Testament, so I'm, I'm hoping we'll get to the new eventually, but we have to <laughs> stuck somewhere in Chronicles right now, beheading people. And <laughs> So right my- now my kids, right now my kids are like, well, God probably doesn't exist, but if he does, he's this sort of wild uh, tribal, like, Gangster, kill everything. Yeah. yeah, right. It's like, kill everyone and all the sheep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my, I remember the prophet Elijah, my, the prophet my, Elijah my, just murdered a whole <laughs> bunch of priests of Baal. My um, sons my, my love was, the Old Testament so much more than the New Testament. <laughs> my, my oldest is like, man, God's such an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> What's your, my, how old is your oldest? Uh, he's 10. Wow. So we're wow. behind you. Uh, yeah. I expect a little, a little. <laughs> the, well, more- you're getting there. So yeah. it's um it, it it changes very very rapidly when they reach their their teen years. It's like a it's a completely different completely different world. You must have I you know, I'm so sort of retroactively jealous Growing oh, up in the South, you must yeah. have seen so many amazing snakes. <laughs> there were uh, we we had um, where I lived. We had um, uh, cottonmouths and oh. uh, heads, um, and I, I did. I I, I got out and like uh, we we had little grass snakes that used to come out all over the place in our yard, and lizards. I I, I used to catch lizards in the backyard all the time. Oh, so jealous. lizards and scorpions. That, that Scorpions, yeah, Georgia. Yep, little black ones, right? Not very big, uh, but if if they stung you, it hurt. Um, you got stung by I, them? Yeah, I got stung by them. <laughs> I I remember I I did wasn't in Georgia, but I I spent some time in Virginia when I was a kid, and I remember my my uncle would have me before my little cousins would go out and play in the backyard. He would have me go and look for uh, snakes and spiders. And yeah. I remember one time going out in the backyard, and this is in Rocky Mount, Virginia, and I, like, no joke, I found eight black widows just in his backyard where the, the nice kids thing were going to go play. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about black widows is they're, they're usually in dark corners. They don't move around much. Um, so if you know you're in a place that they like to be, well, then you just go carefully. Yeah. Well, this was in like a backyard with grass. Yeah. And there they were, were just, there were black were widows like grass. all over. Yeah. Were, were they, were, was the grass long enough? Like they could just hide in the grass. It was like about like sort of 10 inches. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah. They, yeah. Probably... And they were just like all over the place. That, that gets trickier when the grass is longer. That's what we, we kept our grass relatively short. Um, so they were usually um, like um, in in the crevices of the house. But mm-hmm. if your grass is tall, if the grass is tall, then you you gotta be, you gotta look out for them. I remember a couple of years ago, Annalise and I went to uh, to Palm Springs with two of our good friends, Fred and Janice, and like uh, every time I would go down into, we were doing like a house exchange, 
So the guy who owned the place switched places with with our place here in Montreal. And um, anyway, every time I would go down to the garage, I saw a big black widow spider, female, like on a web, running and hiding in the corner. Right. (laughs) And I kept like. It was like like Mr. Snuffleupagus. Like I kept telling people, like I'm seeing this thing. It's and there. It's like, no, there. Sir. It's totally real. It. And they're like, yeah, right, because they would show up and like the <laughs> spider would not be there. So then I was telling my friend Fred, I'm like, I'm serious. This thing is actually there. And so he went on the internet and he found out that like if you if you go down into the place with a particular kind of like light, it was like a like I don't know, like black light or something like that. They don't run away because they they don't uh, respond to it. So yeah. I think it was like black light or something. But anyway, we we found like um, a light that would fit this. that you could use that the spider would yeah. not respond to. And so we went <laughs> we went down to the and and keep in mind that like our kids were like little infants who were like playing right. around this garage at the <laughs> time. Anyway, and um. So we went down to the garage with this black light and he was like, Oh my God. <laughs> and he could see the black widow right there. there he's, it like, is. he's like, Oh my God, you're not joking. <laughs> and it was right. I felt yeah. so well, vindic- that was, I, mean, I felt so vindicated. Yeah. 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 My experience living with them though, was that they're actually relatively easy to avoid in part because they want to avoid you. Um, it does get tricky if you're running in tall grass. That's that the only time if you surprise them before they can run away, um, then you might get bitten, and that could be bad. Did you know anybody uh, who got bitten? Um, I'm pretty sure some of some of the people around us had to, um, but no, well, I never saw anyone um, with bad reactions from spider bites growing up. Yeah. I used to take uh, spiders out of the house. So we the ones that uh, that we got that caused the most trouble in our house were actually wolf spiders. Um, really, and I and I would just pick them up and throw them outside. One did bite me, um, and it hurt, but it it wasn't like they're not black widows. So no, the in Baltimore when we lived in Baltimore, they had the this uh, spider called a brown recluse. Oh yeah, those are those and are scary. They just oh man, like you know they're you know we lived right in the middle of Baltimore, like in a just like a block away from Johns Hopkins university. And like the, uh, and it was, they were, if you went down to the basement, like where our, it was like an apartment building and we had the, the washer and dryer for the building. The apartment building was in the basement. It was like a coin thing. And there were Brown recluse, like lots of them down there. And we knew lots of people who had been bitten by, those things and those, it was those are a bad a one really really big deal like it would yeah no well that it is that's a serious that's a that's a serious bite yeah and it would last for like months they would have like all these complications associated with it and stuff like that so so, so yep. but what are you you know speaking of poisonous spiders uh <laughs> what what are you teaching in utah what are you doing um um yeah so i basically teach introductory humanities um history and uh, philosophy at a state college um, that has open enrollment. So it, it's really interesting. 
um, I get all kinds of people. Some some are very eager and able to be there. Others are just trying to see if uh, maybe college is not for them. Um, this is and you're you're basically doing exactly what I'm doing here in Montreal. Like I teach basically the same thing. It's an open enrollment um, intro to philosophy, intro to history, intro to classics at a at a big kind of open public institution that exactly the same thing and it's you know uh i i actually love it you know because i i have people in my class who are future cops future nurses future farmers future you know everything right future lawyers doctors i have like the whole spectrum in my class which I find actually has been a very good uh, discipline for me as a teacher because I've taught it, I've taught it elite places. Like when I first graduated, I taught it like one of the top universities in Canada, this place is called Queens. And I found actually, you what? (laughs) I've heard of that one. Yeah. And you know, and I found that like actually teaching at Queens it was great for me as a teacher, but it it can make you lazy. Yeah, it's it can a make you really lazy because the students are so smart and they're so motivated that, like, yeah, you, you just, can screw you up in a thousand ways, and they will still, fi- you know, find the thread and produce yeah, yeah. really great work, right? Whereas, yeah. like, you you get into like a a place that's not not as good and yeah well, you, you, you can't get away there. with bullshit right like no you, you can't, can't you can't yeah. <laughs> if if they're all like well i'm totally bored and can't do this exactly you're like, well, well why <laughs> yeah well, you <laughs> what, need to like step up your game this? right so <laughs> so basically we're back in missions again yeah <laughs> true we never left yeah we never uh, left so you you have to like kind of step up your game and be able to like if if everybody's like you know i in a typical typical class i teach right most of the people in my class are in what's called up here a career program which is like they're trained to be like a cop or a nurse or something like that so they okay. all they need to get in my class is a passing grade which up yeah, here is a 60 that- Right? That's the same. That's yeah. the same. All right. they need to get is a 60. So they don't need to like, they don't need to be like a keener. They don't need no. to like, you know. So if I'm being boring, they're going to behave like I'm being boring. <laughs> Whereas when I taught at Queens, I could be totally boring and not very well prepared, and they would be at the edge of their seats. Just yeah. like, well, and, and you're like, amazing. Well, I, I have to go read Nietzsche and memorize him because I don't want to fail. Yeah. So <laughs> Whereas like in they, my class, they're like, Nietzsche is an idiot. Why would I read him? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like they, uh, they actually, teaching at Queens for a year, in many ways, it actually made me like less good. It was almost like yeah. having one of those overly <laughs> indulgent parents 
You, who, you get really good at preaching to the choir. Yeah, exactly. Really bad. Exactly. Right. So <laughs> you can like I look back at I look back at one of my course outlines for one of the classes I taught at Queens, and I'm like, this is the shittiest. Like it's like so <laughs> poorly designed, and my essay questions were so terrible, and like these little fucking alchemists, these genius <laughs> alchemists, good. they managed to turn my shit into gold. Like they managed to like, you know, these really poorly defined like essay questions that were not very, they were not good. They managed to spin these beautiful essays out of like my ill-conceived, like bad questions. And that makes you lazy as a teacher. I'm still in the the process of negotiating, like rewriting syllabi and sort of fine tuning the ability to actually reach people. Um, and I, I'm probably not as far along as you are. Um, but I, I, I'm definitely far, far enough along that I'm no longer making the same mistakes I made the first time. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I've done. got it to the point now where I, I mean, <laughs> if you would have told me of 2000, to let's say that this is what I'd be doing in 2019, I would be <laughs> shocked. But like, what? Oh. I uh, but no, I I use absolutely no uh, auto audiovisual material. I have no notes. Yeah, I, no. I memorize. Oh, I memorize my because course this is exactly outline. what I do. <laughs> yeah, I memorize my lecture outline before I go into class which is not hard. I mean, like we both had to memorize Bible passages when we were kids. So like I was a missionary, I was a missionary. We had, yeah, you, you memorize Bible passages because you're in my family, but then as a missionary too, uh, you have discussions, um, which you quote unquote memorize, but it's much more like, um, giving a lecture. If, if you do it the right way, because you're supposed to elicit feedback from the people, Mm -hmm. um, I can kind of have an idea what subjects you might talk to me about, but I don't know what you're going to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, if yeah, I react, it's like, if it's I like react a, as though it didn't matter that that's going to be a problem. Yeah. It's like um, a good customer service representative. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but so you, um, have, you have like you have your small list of things that, you know, you're going to talk about and then uh, various strategies that you develop over time for how people talk to you about this stuff. Well, I, I realized very quickly teaching this kind of population, I realized that, okay, first of all, I can't use audiovisual stuff because nothing I do is more interesting than the phone in their pocket, right? Oh, right. So I, I need to be more interested. My, my, basically, my benchmark is like, I need to be more interesting than your phone. So. Yeah. I do everything and and actually, you know, as it turns out, it's not that hard to be more no. interesting than a phone cuz well, you're live. Actually, stand-up yeah. comedy is kind of a big business now for those who can do it. Yeah, if if you're live, it's not that hard to be more interesting than a phone, especially since they look at their phone, you know, 10 hours a day, 7 yeah. days a week, so they're kind of yeah. getting bored of their phone. So it, you have an advantage over the phone in the fact that you're like live. Yeah, it's and, like I'm only now for this. Yeah, <laughs> after so, this hour, I will vanish. Exactly right. So I, I basically, I never take my eyes off of them, even for a second. 
like I don't turn around because as soon as you turn around and like start writing on the chalkboard or the whiteboard, you've lost about five of them. They're they've yeah, gone that's, to sleep that's a mistake that or I they're in their make. phone. So <laughs> you just have to like kind of have your stick ready and you and not run. you get yes. going and you're absolutely relentless for the entire class period. You never take your eyes off them. You move around constantly. Uh jump up on the desk if you have to, like walk around the class, you know, get them yeah, to yeah. You know, do everything like a revival tent preacher. Yeah, like a revival preacher or a stand-up comedian. Yeah, exactly. Which is the same thing, of course. That was it's well, exactly. Yeah, the, the funniest thing that I, I it was actually um, listening to Joe Rogan. I had this revelation where I was like, "Oh, well, he, this is basically what I do. Only he's doing it with jokes." Yeah, so yeah. I'm like, I just need I need to make jokes about history that people will listen. Yeah. No, I mean that's a that's. I I think people who say like that, for instance, Joe Rogan is an idiot. Yeah, are well, idiots I, are idiots because well, like it is so I'm, I'm hard. I'm like, well, he's an idiot, but so am I. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's really hard to maintain a conversation smoothly that's not scripted with so many different kinds of people. Like, oh yeah. Often it's not easy. Like what he's doing is the genius of a stand-up comic. Like it's, it's yeah. very yeah. very hard. He's to actually, do. he's really skilled, and you don't know it unless you've had a lot of conversations like that. <laughs> yeah, and it's not easy. It's not easy at all to do that. And he and he does it. He makes it look easy, right? Which is <laughs> everybody who's good at anything makes it look easy. Like yeah. it's. Uh, you know, I mean, the the best pastor I've ever known, um, who was just a, a phenomenal preacher, he was just, he was just unbelievable. And yet, if you actually knew him, as I, I got to know him very well, I mean, I still know him very well, he was a, a very, very introverted person who, like, in his personal life, all he wanted to do was hang out with his wife and tend his garden. He he was the, the <laughs> I, most I, anti-social person. He he just almost like didn't like people. But yeah, yeah, in the yeah. church, he was a phenomenally charismatic presence at the at the podium and just really really good you know after afterwards and talking to people and ministering to people and he's very good at like you know, as a as a pastor, he's really good at his job. But as soon as yeah. he left Trinity Pentecostal Church, he just became this. You know, the way you describe <laughs> your parents, like, like just like he like, powered down. <laughs> yeah, he just like powered down, and he just did not want like at all. It's like I've I've like used all my empathy now. points. The, the spirit has left. Yeah, now it's I'm just, gone. I'm going right. To- and I became, like I, I became friends with him, and <laughs> so I would see like him getting out of character, and just becoming like his regular self, like Peter Parker, taking off his Spider-Man uniform, and uh, and so I remember just being amazed by it. And uh, I, his example, his witness has been so useful to me as an educator, 
that yeah. you just when you get up there you get into character and you do you look at it as a dramatic performance yeah and if you no, think no, of it was, that yeah, way you'll do way better than if you're trying to like be yourself whatever that means yeah whatever that means yeah. Um, usually, usually in my experience where people tend to go awry, um, maybe this is different than yours. I don't know. Uh, but I feel like a lot of academics feel like there's a certain amount of subject that they, that they, they have to do the subject justice. It's like, I have to get through so many things and I have to say the right words about them so that you'll be able to pass it on the midterm. <laughs> uh, where from my point of view, that's not really how it works. No. Um, I think the worst the worst college experience that I had it wasn't even that bad, um, but I took an undergraduate course in botany. Right, I needed to uh, fulfill a science requirement at uh, the University of Georgia that I couldn't fulfill with a test. Um, so I went to this botany course, and it was taught by two professors. One of these professors was a mycologist who was super interesting. He would come to class dressed up with a bow tie, um, and uh, and give us lect- actual lectures where he would just talk. But mycology is not even considered part of botany anymore. That's like the yeah, like well, fungi is like completely yes, a different, yes, yes. like a different animal kingdom. Well, now. That's, that's probably, like, I mean, that's why they, they let him, that's probably why they made it. <laughs> what was his name? This I don't remember his name. Really? Um, I, I it was too many years ago. So, like, it was too many years ago. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I was what? Like, um, again, I, I would have been like 18. Hmm. Um, but uh, it was, so that was one guy. Um, and then the other guy who taught the course, uh, I don't remember what his specialty was because he never told us. Um, he would just come up and read from these slides that he had. Um, <laughs> and the slides and autistic. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, he would give us uh, a digest of the textbook on his slides. So I still came, unlike like half the class, I still came to all of his lectures. Um, but I didn't really listen. I would just read the textbook and take notes and sort of um, – look up every you know 20 minutes or so to make sure that he hadn't died um <laughs> he, he read all of his notes in a monotone it was perfect though it was like the complete opposite of the first guy right so you had two you had two teachers one was like i'm gonna talk to you and walk around and i'm really like mushrooms so every time you know i can mention them i will mm-hmm. um so we you have random tangents about you know mushrooms that aren't even plants um <laughs> yeah uh, but well, my guy. my college is is crazy because, like, you know, I mean, I, I, as I'm sure you you know, they all the recent sort of gene mapping is that they are actually far far closer to us than plants. Yeah, like they, you know, the the fungi are way way closer to animals than they are to plants. So. They are something very kind of fascinating and yeah, 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 and interesting. But uh, like, wow, what if so, an animal or a plant? <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 you know it's an interesting kind of like gray area. But so where do you? I mean, where do you see? Like, where do you see yourself going in the future? I mean, do you have like a? Are it's you probably just, a problem that I have? I I I would like to um, get. Uh, I would like to sort of become a permanent fixture where I am. Um, but I don't know that that's really an option. Um, I don't know that I have uh, the skills or that I can beat out the rest of the market, or I, I don't even know that the market will hold is the other question. Um, I feel like there's a sort of overabundance, if you like, right now of uh, academics. 
and uh, we're overcharging for our services, at least here in the U.S. and all the schools that I've been in. UVU is less guilty of this than many other schools, which is one reason why we get so many people who enroll, not just because there's open enrollment, but also because tuition is relatively low. Um, it's still too high, but it's not as ridiculous as it was in Illinois. Um, when I was in Chicago, I was teaching at uh, the Illinois Institute of Technology, um, which I could never have gone to without a scholarship because it was too expensive. Mm -hmm. um, whereas UVU, I could have, I could, I could pay. You could, you can pay your way through UVU. It won't be super easy, um, as easy as it would have been like 20 years ago, um, but it is possible, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's impossible. And then I got my graduate degree at Duke, which. I used to have a heart attack every time they would send me a bill each semester because mm -hmm. um, because the way they would do it is they would send you a bill for tuition and then they would send you another bill or notice telling you uh, what your scholarship paid, which in my case was all of it. Um, and then, you know, give me a stipend. But they, you get the bill first. <laughs> right? So, That's intense. It's like, it's like uh, oh, you owe you owe us uh, twenty eight thousand dollars. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Psych. Yeah, the uh, and if I were an undergrad, yeah, when I was in grad if I were school, an undergrad, it would be twice. I, I did the same as you. I, I piggybacked. Um, oh. I, I leapfrogged over the master's directly to a Ph.D. program yeah. at, at Hopkins. And like, but they were not nearly as sadistic because we were, you know, a little <laughs> farther north. You know, <laughs> so in Baltimore, but uh, they they didn't send us the bill they would just like sort of tell us that uh your tuition and everything is totally covered by your scholarship and we would get like a stipend which was um i think it was like 10 or twelve thousand dollars a year something like that but you could do taing and get more and money. yeah and and way more like way more like i remember like the TAing was just after I graduated and I started like becoming like an adjunct and part timer. I was like, which is what I am right now. Yeah, which I was like, man, you guys are nickel and diming me like a motherfucker. Like I, I, like, I couldn't believe yeah. because what I got in grad school was insane. Like you would get for TAing, you would get like five grand for doing one section. Like which was like wow. you know fifteen That's more than I fifteen made for class. which was yeah. like fifteen twenty students right if oh, wow. you wanted to do like like more work which was you know not much if you wanted to do like double double work at Hopkins so you wanted to do like two or three sections you'd yeah. get like ten fifteen grand for that oh, wow. one class. So you're a TA in a class. I remember I TA'd for uh Daniel Bell's son, David Bell, mm -hmm. who uh is, you know, really really fantastic French historian. Um I did like double double duty in his classes for like two semesters. It was like getting paid 10 grand American <laughs> <laughs> to basically be a TA. Like wow. I never got that no after I graduated. <laughs> like nope. I didn't I didn't make that much teaching, you know, I, for a semester at Queens, like where I was the actual teacher, not the TA. Like Yeah, I've, I've never seen that. That that that's really nice.
Yeah, they really they paid very very well, but um, but it was um, you know kind of a, a ridiculous. So so your your goal would to be a per, to be a permanent fixture. Do, do you think there's yeah. a do you think that we might end up going back? This is what my wife and I talk about often. But like, do you think we might end up going back to a kind of like Augustine type world where? Uh, you teachers are sort of guns for hire and you have like students that pay you a la carte. Oh, I think we're already going that way. Okay. Yeah. But that's my, my other thought right now is, um, uh, I know you ran into Thaddeus Russell. He's trying to do that renegade university thing. Um, I was thinking about writing him an email and offering to do correspondence courses with anyone who wants to read Latin or Greek. Um, original or in translation. Yeah. Because um, I, I would like to do stuff like just teach Plato's Republic or the Iliad or whatever, whatever people want to do, really. Um, anything is good. Uh, but but my current situation makes that a little dicey. I mean, there are ways I can make it happen here, but I don't know that I'll get those courses, right? Occasionally I get them, but um, I don't know if they're going to turn up. And I also don't know... It, it, <laughs> It's nice to have as many revenue streams as possible, especially when they keep on shrinking. Yeah. Yeah. At some point, I should probably give up and just become like, I don't know, a janitor or something. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, I, I think actually the the a la carte model, I think it 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 has yet to be perfected. But oh, I think yeah. I think whoever figures it out because uh, I've actually talked to to Thaddeus about that, and like I I think the the way that it could work is you you need to have like um kind of like a guild of yeah. of let's say like two hundred educators who teach a bunch of different things, and so they have enough of a diversity that. Uh, people can find what they want, right? Right. And then they have to be sort of working in concert together and have like a uniformity of like, uh, and then you you get taught, you can do like Skype and FaceTime and things like that. You can sort of interact with the teacher face-to-face and you can have lots of, they can help you out, right? But, yeah. Uh, there has to be some sort of uniformity of like what the fee is, right? But that hasn't been worked out yet. But no, yeah. And the the I I actually did a lot of uh, correspondence courses as a student that I really liked. Really? Um, yeah. I guess in many ways, I think part of my problem is that I belong in an iteration of the world before we invent all this weird modern technology for doing what we're doing right now, which feels fine now that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, now that all the microphones are working and I'm talking, I, I don't, I'm not as worried as I was this morning. <laughs> it, it's funny because if you, you've heard of JD Salinger. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's, um, in his book of short stories, uh, nine stories, right? Um, one of the stories is set, which, you know, as a Canadian growing up in Montreal in a neighborhood called Verdun, 
I was completely oh, shocked when I read Nine Stories for the first time because here's this like world famous American author, and one of his stories is set in Canada, in Montreal, in Verdun, the neighborhood <laughs> that I grew up in. You're like what? Yeah, no. it's like it's like set in Verdun on Wellington Street, and he's basically like. Uh, in, in this story, it's set. There's a, like a couple of people who run like an art school that's by correspondence, and you like sort of you work on and you paint and stuff like that, and then you send your paintings in, and they give you detailed feedback on your paintings. What's wrong with them? What's right with them? And they send it back to you, and mm. then you like take in that feedback and then you work on those problems and then you paint something else that they tell you to paint and then um, they send it back. And so this correspondence school, so I, I, you know, and I read this when I was, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. I became completely fascinated by this and I, I looked into it to see if this was actually real. It was totally real. Like Salinger based that on an art school that actually was based in Verdun, in Montreal, in Canada, on Wellington Street. And it and was you had no run, idea. I well, but it was run by these like uh, basically Chinese Americans and they had like a very successful business for about 25 years. So this is long before the internet, long before telephone, yeah. like being really widespread. And so clearly humans are capable of doing this. Oh yeah. I like, I like the discipline of writing things down, I guess. Um, not, not because I hate talking, but, but grading people. I always feel better grading people about essays. Um, and grading them about what they say. Yeah, so we can do this. It's not, it's not like unthinkable that we could do this, right? No, it's totally not. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know, as uh, as as Joe Rogan put it a couple months ago, you know, the there's going to be a time in the near future where something like, uh, yeah. Like a, there's gonna be an Uberization of the education system is going to happen. Oh yeah, right. Well, right. <laughs> and when it happens, it has. I mean, we're 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 actively doing everything we can to make it happen. So eventually, it will. Yeah, <laughs> and the, the people who are prepared for that will be will be great, right? <laughs> I mean, the people who Which, aren't in are theory be means that I need mess. to prepare to be great. Yeah, well, and that's that's. I mean, the unfortunate truth about uh, the school is, uh, in many ways, I feel like it is uh, a rerun of my mission in the sense that um, it it can be really hard if you you sort of put all of this time and effort into building these expectations that turn into dreams that turn into, um, I, I guess, auditioning. You mentioned uh, the identity between. Um, uh, teaching and performance. I think teaching is another thing that gets sort of um, sadly overlooked in a lot of the traditional preparation uh, that goes on in grad schools. Uh, some people get it and some people don't. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't learn I didn't learn anything. No, I didn't either. In grad school that prepared me for teaching. Like when I actually started teaching, the only thing that had actually prepared me for it is that I had done like a bunch of like acting and drama. Like I had done like a bit in plays and stuff like that. So I basically, when I started teaching, I looked at the front of the classroom as like, this is stage, stage. left, this <laughs> is stage right. Um, yep. I, I, all the stuff that I had learned in theater, I applied to teaching and it worked really well. But yeah, if I had not had any of that, I would no, have it been be like so lost. many of us. I would have been completely out. lost. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And what I ended up doing was essentially reinventing stand-up comedy. But but what helped <laughs> and what prepared me for it was the fact that I had been a missionary. Um, I, I'm a bad comedian, right? I'm, I I don't claim to be a good teacher, but uh, uh, but I am good enough that I sort of transcended the the first horrible mistakes that I made, which were which were mostly just uh, sort of trying to reenact. It's like, well, someone did this once. Did it? Does it work? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and realizing oh, what what works in a seminar room uh, with grad students isn't always going to work the same way uh, with a bunch of uh, very different undergrad students in uh, a larger room. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's so true. I mean, I I remember hearing, um, I think it was Joe Rogan. I'm not sure exactly, but it was a stand-up comedian talking about how he had watched oh no no it wasn't it wasn't joe rogan who was it it was one of those late night uh late night comedians yeah um, but um anyway and, and he was talking about how he had watched like donald trump sort of going through like the primaries and and he said um i was sort of disturbed by what I was seeing, because oh yeah, I remember this. Yeah, he, he goes basically. He was like a really good stand-up comic yep. working up a set. So he yep. would say a bunch of stuff to a crowd, and he would see what got a good response, and like whatever didn't get a good response and didn't get like like great, you wouldn't hear that in the next like rally. But yep. the stuff that like lock her up lock her up or yeah, like, yeah. you know, whatever <laughs> stuff got people like Rory, he would keep that in. Right. Yeah. And that's how we got, you know, build the wall and lock her up. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and, uh, and like he, and he said like, he was basically just like a really good stand up comedian, like coming up with a set. Right. Yep. Whereas like the people that he was against, they were coming like up that. with their set in a focus grouped, like a bunch yeah. of like experts stuff suits, you know, in yep. the back room and yep. they could never compete no, with what well, he was doing. Cause they're reading a script to themselves. Yeah. Again, they're, they they're reading a, a stiff script to a bunch of people. Whereas like, he's actually just like harnessing <laughs> he's randomness. He's working the crowd. Yeah. He's you're, working you're the crowd. He's seeing what works and he's just, he's just sort of, Every time yeah. there's like a good line, right? Yeah. And he's like, you know, anybody who thinks that he's somehow like this. Uh, I wish I could remember who said this, but he. he oh, I re I remember reading this. Too. Yeah, yeah. You might have linked it. That might. And have um, and it, this comedian is saying like, people who think that he's somehow oh, this I like think it genius. Been, um, 
Was it Scott Scott Adams? No, wasn't, wasn't Scott it. Adams, but he may have linked to it. But uh, it was an actual stand-up comedian, and yeah. he said like uh, people who think that Trump is somehow this like genius who just has the pulse of the people. No, he's going and doing two three shows a day. Yeah, and he's just well, through trial just, and error, he's through developing stochastic he's developing tinkering. Yeah, he's figuring it. out like what works. You know, through like having a big crowd all the time, he's doing exactly what every really like professional stand-up comedian does. They yeah. go to like a bunch of different. They do like seven shows a week, and different crowds, and they see what works, and they yep. sort of. Scrap the stuff that doesn't well, and work. And the same way, the same way you build your syllabi, right? You keep trying to teach Roman history or whatever, and you're like, "Well, five five classes have liked this. Um, no, zero classes have liked that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> no, that's out. Uh... This is in. I'm not using this textbook because everyone hates it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your. I mean, you you'd be down with that as like a future plan. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, I I would definitely be down with it. Um, I'm still debating sending um, Thaddeus the email. I probably should. I probably will. I just finished uh, this semester, so burned out. I don't even know why. Um, I think it's just hard. It's it's hard for me because I still, in many ways, am ang- I, I didn't I didn't get over being anxious, um, and I have not yet achieved in in life a, a position where I have uh, what the, the the fuck you money or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I have the attitude, but not the money. Yeah, no, you probably don't have the attitude either. You're probably pretty, you know, you know, and like most of the time, that is awesome. I mean, because like <laughs> people who get self satisfied, they usually suck. Yeah, yeah, it's right. True. So it's, it's, it's just probably, part of why I don't want to be. You know, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Keep yourself. Keep yourself. <laughs> I mean, I know, like uh, this. Stay human. This friend <laughs> of mine um, that I. I teaches at my college he recently just like resigned his position this is a guy who's like american and right. moved up here for a girl and so american uh, as in non not canadian not canadian and he moved up so, here so u.s american and he basically <laughs> got bored teaching in english and so he sort of taught himself french and then he applied to teach at a french college and is now teaching in French. And his whole reason for doing it was he's like, I don't want to get lazy. Yeah. I want to be like on on edge, like outside yeah. of my comfort zone all the time. He's like, when I get comfortable with this, I'll, you know, whatever, move to like. Move on. Yeah. Move to, you know, Shanghai and like teach in Shanghainese or Mandarin. Like. I'll, I'll move somewhere else. Like I don't want to like get comfortable ever, right? Which is well, that's a, that's quite admirable. Yeah. Anyway, that's well, I mean, a, that's a fantastic place for us to to finish because my my son is having his seventeenth birthday party at our house. Yeah. Well, uh, you don't want to miss that. Oh no, I really want to miss that. I my <laughs> wife and I will be hiding in the bedroom, but we have oh, to be okay. there. Just, you know, sort of like in case of emergency, break glass, like in case of okay, emergency, okay. knock on door. So in, in case of emer- emergency, fetch your parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like if you like somebody 
goes into shock because you know whatever horrible thing they're doing. So, but uh, oh, I mean, I don't think they're going to be doing anything. Bad, no, but, I, I uh, don't. No. <laughs> I'm just anticipating the future. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, it's been wonderful talking with you, and we have to do this again, absolutely. And well, uh, I'm always, I always enjoy talking to you. I actually feel like uh, you you teach me a lot. So thank you. Yeah, I feel I feel exactly the same way about you. All right. Well, have a wonderful night, and uh, we will talk soon. All right. All right. Take care.